since just after the first scene of the first episode of HBO's Game of Thrones, we've been watching Westeros squabble over the Iron Throne. Infighting and politics have played out under the shadow of something much more important, something much larger and much darker, and certainly more epic, if that can be believed. Gior Mormont, the former Lord Commander, asked John. God save us, boy. You're not blind and you're not stupid. When dead men come hunting in the night, do you think it matters who sits the Iron Throne? At the time, we all agreed, but then went back to being enthralled by exactly that. Who's going to sit the Iron Throne? I mean, it's, it's only fair. That's mostly what the show is focused on. But we have had glimpses and reminders of the old bear's words. But with this episode, Hard Home, we got a real reminder. The point wasn't simply argued. It was made clear and present by an extremely well-made scene. Well, hello again, and welcome to another episode of the History of Westeros podcast, a podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire book series, as well as HBO's Game of Thrones. Of course, this is another show-only review. We will not be discussing the books at all. There should be no spoilers for book reader or for uh, show-only watchers. And like I said, we're really excited to talk about this episode. How about you, Sean? You... I am too. Uh, I also fear we might slightly break format because I have some questions that might <laughs> might pertain to the books. Well, I will not. If, if you ask me a question that I am that I can only answer with book spoilers, I will say so. Okay. Uh, so I'll answer what I can and defer to the others. I'll be clear. I don't want to be spoiled either. I'm asking more about like stuff from the past, but I guess right. maybe somehow that could be spoilery too. I, I trust you to be careful. Excellent. So like I said, this episode was super epic. Of course, we're, we feel very positive about this episode. We're really excited to discuss it, and the fandom at large seems to be largely in agreement. I have not really seen a response like this in quite a while, perhaps ever. Uh, it's really glowingly positive. People are super excited. They thought it was one of the best action scenes, maybe the best action scene the show has had, which stands in contrast to one of the worst action scenes mm -hmm. the show has had earlier this season. The episode is rated a 9.9 .9 on IMDb, which is absurdly high. That's an average rating, and the highest possible rating is 10. So an average of 9.9, .9, I mean, any, it's one person rating at 5 drags down a whole bunch of 10. So it's, that's just this gives, goes to show how, how popular that is. IMDb's scale, by the way, is uh, it's a complicated format, and they try to account for, like, one person rating a bunch of times. I think you have to be a member on the forum in the first place. They they have a lot of like factors in their rating scale that try to stop sudden spikes. And despite that, still nine point nine. So yeah, that's really amazing, really impressive. The director is Michael Sapochnik, who also directed the previous episode, episode seven. He has not directed any episodes any other seasons, so he is somewhat new to Game of Thrones. And well, I hope they bring him back next year after after how this episode went, and hopefully he's excited about returning as well. Hopefully the feeling is mutual. Putting out a show, this show only episode, so close to the actual airing of the episode means we can't always catch all the details. So we we do rely on you all to help us out with that. You know, often things we don't actually miss, it looks like we miss. We saved, we're saving them for the book to show episode. Sometimes we do miss things, so doing two reviews really does help to kind of help us catch things. Nice to have that excuse, too. <laughs> oh, yes. yeah, we, we saw that. We saw yeah, that. We were just waiting yeah, for the next yeah, episode. Yeah, <laughs> we caught that. We didn't, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we were just waiting to talk about it later. 
Also, the book to show reviews come about 48 to 72 hours later. It does give us more time to think upon, think and reflect on it. But also it gives you all more time to think and reflect on it, which translates to our show as well being more thorough. Now, speaking of the show, History of Westeros, we have a rather important announcement to make. Next week, the episode will be broadcast live. We will have lots of links going up to direct you all to it. We should be There should be one in the description by the time you're watching this. It should be already there. We'll certainly be tweeting the link and posting it on Facebook as well. And the plan is to start at around 4.30 Eastern Daylight Time, East Coastern U.S., that is. Uh, hopefully that's a time that allows for people from most countries to uh, tune in. Uh, of course, that won't cover everybody, but there's no time of day that somebody isn't going to be a little left out. So that's just that's the best we can do. Also, another announcement regarding the future of the show. We're going to be doing a end-of-the-season wrap-up to chat about things that we think are coming and to look at the season as a whole. Also, it'll give you, Sean, a chance to reflect on some things with a little time to think about it. You're, I've talked about how we, we have to get the show out so quickly, but I get the chance to, to say things again in, in the book-to-show review. You... Everything people hear from you is just within 24 hours of hearing the show. So that'll be a different experience for everybody and for you to get to have more time to think about things. I do a lot of times throughout the week think, oh, I wish I thought of that. I wish I'd said that <laughs> in the show. I, I pretty much, by the time the next episode is airing each week, I've completely predicted everything is going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Now, another, another feature of this wrap-up episode will be more Watchinger questions, which you guys have done a great job on. Now, there's a lot of great questions we haven't had time to answer, partly because of the way the show just shifts plot lines around. Sometimes people will ask a great question about a plot line that isn't in the next week's episode, so we kind of hold off and wait. And then the next episode is just too busy and we don't have time, and so things get lost in the shuffle, but we've saved a lot of these questions, and we're going to answer them there are a lot of them during the wrap-up. So the questions that are still relevant, the best questions. So keep that in mind, folks. Questions that you want to send us don't just have to be for a particular episode. They can be about the future of the show, more direct questions for Sean, etc. So as Game of Thrones is set to conclude its season with a bang, well, so are we here at History of Westeros. We're looking to follow in the show's coattails, so to speak. <laughs> so hopefully the last two episodes are as good as this one was. So let's real quickly... Get started here, but first a rundown of what to expect. This episode, we're going we're gonna to start in the Far East, work our way west, and then north. So we're going to start with Essos, then go to Bravos, then King's Landing, then Winterfell, then the Wall, and finish up with the epic Hardhome, which fit, is fitting since it was the entire second half of the episode proper. Oh, I didn't even think we were going to talk about Hardhome. I thought we were just going to focus on Winterfell. <laughs> <laughs> Now, another thing about the Watchner questions for this week, we are we included some, but there are less than usual. I had to uh, do some traveling last week. I attended a, a family funeral, and that did cut into my prep time. We do love the quality of the feedback that you all send. You guys are, uh, we I think we have a particularly intelligent group of Watchners, which which means that you guys ask good questions, which means that they deserve time and proper consideration. So we're not going to half-ass it. So we're going to save those and do them later, but we did get, manage to get a few of them in this time. We should have time for the trailer discussion in this episode, but if we don't, well, you understand why. It's just because there's too much to talk about. So let's get started. Less of a theme this episode. It was more action-oriented. There were fewer locations, but I'd say that the main theme was perhaps the main, one of the main themes of Game of Thrones has been the whole time, which is 
this political infighting, humanity going at it with itself. Meanwhile, this ancient force is looming over everything. And that is really brought out by this episode. We see a lot of political things happening, but you got to ask yourself, are any of these things even going to matter? Are these are all these plans just going to be irrelevant because the White Walkers are just going to come down and just mess everything up and everyone's going to have to change all their plans? We'll see. So let's start at Essos. Danny, Tyrion, and Jorah. What did you think about this interaction? We have Tyrion kind of being asked to show his skills as a as an advisor right away. Danny puts him to the test immediately. I thought that it was good. I, I uh, thought that scene was pretty good. I appreciate that Danny is like, open-minded about this. One minor nitpick complaint. It's kind of typical of TV and film. You know, you have a, sort of a climactic moment. You have these two characters destined to meet. The man walks in and his wife cheating on him. Whatever it is, you know. <laughs> Scene cuts. I'm like, wait, I wanted to see that. I wanted to see what was going to happen right there. I want to know what the next words out of their mouth were. And at the end of that last episode, we see Tyrion present himself as Jorah's gift to Danny. I'm Tyrion Lannister. Cut. I'm like, wait, hold on. What happened next? <laughs> Thrown back in a dungeon and everone was quiet until they had showers and met in the council, the the, the queen's chamber or whatever. I, uh, <laughs> I feel like there must have been some amount of dialogue before they get to this more official presentation. But, you know, for the sake of TV drama, I accept it. I was looking forward to it, you know, and uh, I think it went interestingly. I don't know quite what I was expecting. I think we talked about it a little bit. I think that, you know, the idea that Tyrion warned Jorah, hey, if, she might not be like, oh, thanks, Jorah, welcome home. Tyrion, chop his head off, you know. <laughs> it might be the other way around. I might chop your head off, Jorah, and she might accept me to her council. And uh, For a second there, it looked like Tyrion was going to suggest exactly that, but he, he yeah. wasn't so firm either way. He still kind of left it up to her. Yeah. But he talked her through it, and that's exa- I thought that was pretty clever. He basically showed her, he's like, I'm not going to make the decision for you, but I'm going to talk to all the different things that need to be considered, all the considerations to show you how good I am at this. And then it, that's exactly what happened. She eventually yeah. decided. She, he kind of led her to the decision, and she took it. A couple thoughts. One, I did appreciate in this scene and a couple other scenes, Tyrion does do a little bit more kind of analysis and thinking forward than most any other character. Most of the other characters just have this brooding, you know, Oh, never blah, 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 you know, uh, uh, or maybe keep it to themselves. Like Bruce Bolton, I imagine, kind of goes through this sort of plotting in his mind, but he doesn't say it to anyone, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Tyrion does. He thinks it all out, explains it good of Danny to give him a chance to. You know, she she cut Jorah short. She's like, I don't want to hear anything from you. But she let <laughs> Tyrion talk. I wonder if or what Jorah would have said if he had been allowed to speak. I, I have a feeling it wouldn't have been much more than... I'm sorry, please forgive me. He probably wouldn't have had the same side of sort of analysis that Tyrion had. I will say one little thought I had was I wonder how much Tyrion was telling her what she wanted to hear. I wonder on what level he understood what was going on, how much Jorah had revealed to him. Not to say it wasn't wrong or incorrect or bad advice, but I wonder how much of an angle of whatever he wanted was tainted by what she wanted to hear. I don't know if that makes sense or not. It makes a lot of sense. I think you might be right. I think he, I mean, I think any smart person is going to at least include a little bit of making sure their audience gets a little bit of what they want to hear. He's not trying to just be the, you know, he's not trying to put her in a weird spot. He's trying to prove his worth and sweetening it up, sweetening the situation a little bit by being more likable or by twisting things just a little bit. That, you know, I wouldn't call that dishonest. Uh, That's just 
to a certain point, oh, it yeah. becomes dishonest. No, I know you're not saying it is. I'm just saying that that to a certain extent, doing that is not dishonest. But yeah. after to a certain point later, it does become dishonest. It's, it's all about. It can be dishonest, you know. Like yeah. I think if he thought decision A was clearly correct and decision B was clearly incorrect, and he tried to get her to do C decision B because he thought that's what she wanted to hear. That, but I think that there's like decisions A through Z and some of A, B, and C are kind of more correct than some of X, Y, and Z, but she'll go along more with D than she will with A, you know, like <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not simple mm -hmm. uh, in any way. And I think that Tyrion's smart enough to kind of like uh, feel out, you know, how much he's thought ahead, what he's going to say, how much he's reading He's reading her facial expressions as he said these things. He probably had a series of if-thens, you know what I mean? Uh, whether he was allowed to talk, what Jorah said, who else was present in the room. I don't know if he knew that Barristan Summing was ever with her, much less that he was dead at this point, things like that. Additionally, I think it's interesting, and Tyrion said this more clearly later on, he doesn't have a lot to lose. Like, look, I already gave up on life. I don't care if you listen to me or not. You know That's what good I mean? point, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't have some bias here where I get to be king if you don't kill me. Like, I don't know. I was expected to die anyway, so... That maybe gives him a little extra boldness or motivation to be honest or whatever, uh, which maybe is what she needs. Uh, I feel like for the most part, her counsel, despite maybe being a little afraid to tell her the truth in public, don't hold back too much. You know what I mean? I think that Barrison told her, hey, look, your dad wasn't a great guy. Dario tells her, look, you're either meat or a butcher. You know, people, mm -hmm. uh, it's, I don't necessarily think she has a lacking of honesty, but maybe a lacking of forethought and analysis that Tyrion clearly is bringing so anyway I liked it you mentioned that he Tyrion isn't aware of Barristan and all these other things but he did touch on something by accident that I think really hit home and the camera cut to Danny's face right at that point which I thought was kind of sneaky when he makes he, he makes the point about well you can't just kill if you kill all the people who are devoted to you they won't be you won't, you won't have devoted people anymore well she already did that she yeah. killed Masador. she executed yeah. Masador earlier this season and we all we talked about that a lot at the time and how that was a tough decision for her and how it was it was a bit of a mistake she's i believe our conclusion was that she should have punished him but not with death she should have shown some mercy or at least not public beheading yeah, <laughs> like that, the... and that so I think that had more of an impact than it could have had because it, it was personal and Danny didn't realize, Danny knows that he's not, you know, like needling her for that decision. He doesn't know that happened. So it was like, ooh, yeah, you're right about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that hit home for her, I'm sure. And there are some other good lines he had. He says, I can't remember a sane, ever seeing a sane man as devoted to anyone and yet he betrayed you. A lot of his lines were like this, but this, and another example is, he's in love with you, but he did not trust you. <laughs> yeah. And ultimately, he asked the question, he also showed his value to her by asking important questions like, well, did he have a chance to confess? And she's like, yes, he had plenty of chances to confess. And so he, he, he I, I think he just, I, mean, I think it's not unrealistic that he won her over so quickly because he really did display an enormous amount of talent. And proved his worth. And she knows she needs the advice. And she knows she needs help. And she just had to be sure that he wasn't, you know, that he's not something else. That he's not what he, he's not lying. That he isn't pretending to have skills he doesn't have. Things like that. That's a lot of times I think that characters who 
or making decisions or making points about a decision. They just present this one side and it's quick and easy for the other side to say, what about that or not? And it even started off a little bit like that. He's like, hey, I'm the best Lannister killer. Oh, so I should welcome you to help me because you killed your family. Uh, all right, slow down, hold on. Uh, uh, yeah, she he, had a, she I, had some good comebacks. He's he's good right. with his comebacks, but she had good comebacks of her own. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think as you were saying, he's like, you know, he loved you, but he was dishonest to her. You know, like anything, all the points he brought up, there are things she could have said to counter. He brought up the counters also. So she could see he's thinking it through. He's not one-sided. He's not necessarily trying to save drawer or save himself he's n- analyzing the issue yeah really um, kind of she kind of showed off his own thought process he yeah. kind of made it clear what his you know how he was how he preferred to do things i also appreciated uh i, th- I think it was a little subtle but when he, he said he even loves you i think and they cut to danny and she seemed to be watering up a little bit her eyes seemed to be i don't know on what level that was she loved him too or she felt extra betrayed that he would you know love her and do that to her or uh, but whole, clearly, yeah. she's not. She clearly, I mean, she could have just completely justifiably killed him in the first place. I feel like Tyrion wasn't like saying, "No, you can't kill him no matter what." Here, he's like, "I think the best call, even though it's close, is just get rid of him." You know, I, and I think even that wasn't easy for her. Uh, yeah, I, the whole thing makes her really emotional. Like the whole, he really is important to her, and he, she felt really strongly about him. Not, I don't think she you know, has romantic feelings for him by any means, but as a father figure, as an uncle figure, as a, as a protector, he was the first one there for her, basically the first one to kneel to her after the dragons were born. And he, his devotion has been so strong that her news of his betrayal was such a shock to her. And, you know, the more you love somebody, the more their betrayal is going to hurt. And I think that's part of it. And just being reminded that he loves her or is in love with her just made the sting even harsher and it's also more confusing for her, you know. It's yeah, like, yeah. how can he do this if he feels that way, and et cetera. And her temper gets, is, is a big part of it as well. It's harder for her to think clearly about it. Not just her temper, but any all of her emotions around the situation. But her temper, of course, is, a, is always in play because she has a pretty big temper. She's Targaryen. She's got that fiery mm-hmm. temper, right? They brought back a bit of an old device when they sent Jorah out of the city. They had they packed a little extra punch in the scene by playing the old sad dragon music again, and then Jorah goes to look at his watch, and oh no, that's not a watch, that's that's more grayscale building. I will say throughout that whole scene, I had just I want to say I'd forgotten, but I just was not actively thinking about the fact that he had grayscale in my <laughs> mind. Like what, I wasn't thinking, well, if he kicks her out, if he, if Tyrion tells him da da da, I wasn't you know kind of like thinking about what's going on, what people were thinking, what might happen. I wasn't considering in the equation the grayscale factor until he walked out. Looking at it, I was like, "Oh yeah, there's that part too." And that would have made, made Tyrion's call easier. It's like, "Well, you need to get rid of him yeah. for sure. Dude has grayscale. <laughs> Forget everything else. There's nothing. There's no way around this. That, whew, that was an easy decision." But then we see he shows up with Yezan, the slave master guy, and he shows that he's still really, really devoted. Wants to fight his way in front of her again. Guy just can't take no for an answer. He is really, really bent on proving himself again. He also has little else to live for, right? Yeah, no, he. you're right. He has no possessions. There's, there's nothing else that he really cares about in life. His father's dead. Like, even some idea of going back home, and that's pretty much gone, right? And he's probably going to die anyway. He'd rather die fighting 
in an attempt for some sort of redemption. You know, it, it makes a lot of sense. Any decision he's making right now, you have to definitely consider the fact that he expects to be dead in, in a few years or less. That's, yeah. that's a good point. No matter what he's doing. So it's not, it's not quite as crazy as it might seem. You know, it's hard, it's hard for any of us to know what we would do with the rest of our lives if we knew for a fact that we were slowly turning to stone. <laughs> so it's not really something we can put our own, our, our, uh, put ourselves in his place with regards. But there's the, some different things happen in the Tyrion and Danny one-on-one scene. There was the, the carryover from the Jorah scene, but the scene where she finally decides to accept him as an advisor has some interesting undertones. First of all, there's a lot of interesting similarities between Tyrion and Danny that's kind of interesting. Both of them, their mothers died giving birth to them, which is kind of neat. It's not necessarily deeper meaning to that, but it's kind of an interesting thing. Does mean that neither of them have a mother figure growing up. That is very true. Neither of them were mother. Now, of course, Danny didn't know her father either. She only has stories about him, and those stories are not so good. <laughs> Tyrion did know his father quite well. And, Probably wished it had only been stories. <laughs> yeah, quite likely. And Tyrion brings up an interesting question. He suggests, perhaps this is where you belong, out here in Slaver's Bay. What did you think of that suggestion? I thought it was really interesting. I think that that, that idea, especially watching what's happening with the show, again, I've said many times, you have this sort of squabbling over who's going to be king while these real threats are looming, dragons in the west and zombies in the north. Maybe dragons in the West aren't even a threat, you know, like they haven't, they're locked up, not under control. Danny is struggling to maintain her kingdom as it is, not a solid plan to come come to Westeros anytime soon anyway. I think I said dragons in the West, I meant East, <laughs> get that straight. And here's Tyrion's even suggesting, look, you're already being a great ruler here. Why do you even want to go back there? It's it's crappy there anyway. <laughs> Camelot is a silly Westeros. place. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to do the same joke. Damn uh, it, beat me to it. Yeah, I, th- I, I still sort of expect that's where it's going. But maybe she will be showing up as a savior with her dragons to kill off all the White Walkers. I don't know. But uh, Yeah, that's, but, uh, that's very true. Uh, definitely an interesting uh, suggestion for Tyrion. And I'm... A logical one, I'll say. You know. Yeah. And another thing that was an interesting undertone from this, this scene is not only do we have... We finally get to see where this breaking the wheel speech came from because it's something that was part of the preseason trailers. Mm-hmm. We finally see it come. But there's something missing. Tyrion... First of all, Tyrion breaks it down. He says, look... He shows more of his value by explaining which houses may or may not align with her. He says, the Tyrells are a possibility. Everybody, you know, Lannisters, no way. You know, the Starks, Starks are, are kind of gone... Etc. lists off of fires off a few names, but he doesn't mention the Martells. He doesn't mention the Greyjoys either. And then she does her wheel speech. She doesn't mention them either. Does that mean they're potential allies or or afterthoughts? Or in the Greyjoy case, it might make them afterthoughts. But Martell, we know they're not afterthoughts. They're far too deep in the game. Yeah. To borrow a line from the Wire, <laughs> you know, they're they're there's you got to account for them. Well, I, a couple things. One, I don't know how to say this without it coming off too negative or dismissive, but maybe they're not worth mentioning. They're not going to list seven. There's this house and 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 this house, and, this house, <laughs> and I'm going to break the wheel. You know, <laughs> uh, they're just going to name the two or three most relevant or whatever. Um, also, um, I don't know if the Greyjoys or Martells have ever been on top either you know they're a little more they sort of have know, I mean, the great stable choice. as far as the wheels turning it's they haven't like shifted place in power you know yeah. 
Uh, the, whereas, well, the, the Martells were married to the royal family. I mean, Danny's older brother was married to a Martell. True, true. So yeah. that, that's yeah. about as on top as you can get without being an actual ruling family. And none of those families have ever been the ruling family, except for the Lannisters now, sort of. But they're, they're really the Bar- Baratheons. I mean, Tommy yeah, is still a Baratheon. Yeah. But we all know that's really the Lannisters uh, calling the shots there. And we know that Tommen is really a Lannister. I remember I saw uh, the character... Marcella Baratheon listed somewhere. And I was like, she's not Brett. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> she's a land. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. guess technically. <laughs> in name, she is a Baratheon. Yeah, but in reality, <laughs> not so much. And another interesting parallel that Tyrion brings up, again, showing how useful he is and how insightful he is politically. He's like, Danny says, I'm going to break the wheel. And he says, How's it working out for you, ruling without the support of the nobility? How's that going for you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and she's like, hmm, sons of the harpy, had to impale a bunch of guys on stakes, fed a guy to a dragon. Yeah, it's not going great. <laughs> yeah, you know, he called her terrible. She's like, I'm terrible. He's like, I've heard stories. And I, I remember when I was thinking how terrible it was, she had that guy uh, fed to the dragon. And I, I think I said it's like the worst thing anyone's done. And someone else is like, what about having 100 people nailed to stay? And like, I oh, yeah, that she's... That story's going to spread. Too, yeah. And there's and this, the, yeah. that's the, the story that's going to spread is the 163 guys were nailed to posts. The why, the how, the, the who, like reason behind it. Yeah. Only Well, the who sort of. Well, not who they are, but who did it. That's yeah. pretty much Danny and the dudes on posts. That's yeah. pretty much all the gi- the gist of it that people are going to hear. They're not going to they're not going to hear whether or not she was justified, like what the reasoning was. Yeah. They're just going to be like, "Whoa, that is vicious." People aren't going to hear all the justifications for why Tyrion killed his dad. They're just going to know Tyrion killed his dad. You know? Yeah, and interestingly, Tyrion is doesn't want to tell the story. He's like, "Well, yeah. we get each- we get to know each other better," which is a, I think that was a both accurate and smart thing to say to her. He's like, "Well, it's very personal. I'm not just gonna. I'm not proud of it." He's kind of saying, "He's like, I'm not gonna brag yeah. about it. It's not something that I would." Yeah. So I think that carried that that put to rest some of Danny's fear that he was just like, "Hey, I'm this Lannister killer," and he's like, "Yeah, but I know it was my family. It was it wasn't an easy thing to do." So, I'm really curious to see how that goes. That that plays out. Danny and Tyrion together is really cool, and there's a lot more potential there for future things. For Varys showing up, that's what I'm really hoping for. Yeah, and Tyrion's defense. What do you think about Tyrion's and, defense of Varys? And hoping that he shows up welcome, mm-hmm. right? Like I I didn't think about it too actively about how it would have gone if he. What if Varys and Tyrion show up instead of Jorah and Tyrion? Varys can't, like, win some combat and <laughs> present this gift. I wonder how he would have gone about the initial meeting. You yeah, know? Varys would have to do like Tyrion. He'd have to be good at talking, which he is. So yeah, he would have yeah. to... So that, that might just, be... like, coordinating a meeting. He might have come in disguise, I suppose. Well, he is good that's at that, too. That's part of his yeah. character, right? So. That is very much... So I think that's that's all we have for Danny and Tyrion for now. Really looking forward to more of that. Looking forward to see how that goes. And to see what the show does with it. So let's continue west. Let's go to Bravos. We have Arya playing the lying game. It looks like she's getting really good at it, wouldn't you say? She's she's improved. I thought it was funny. The thing that she tried to lie was a geographical thing. Like I turned down Moonsinger Lane. Smack. I wonder. I turned the way, like he knows where the streets are. Come on. <laughs> well, I, I, again, I wonder if that was a, a, an act of lie. If she's trying to sneak something by her, or a mistake. If she just said the wrong name or said the wrong direction, he's mm. like correcting. Look, you got to get your story straight. Even if you're not lying, it's still gonna smack you. I hadn't considered that. That's an interesting yeah. possibility. Now, a little just to, just for fun, the Moon Singers are a, a religious. There are religious leaders from Jogos Nai, which is 
farther east than the Dothraki Sea, even. They are so far away that they're nev definitely never going to have a part of the story. There's this huge, massive mountain range that separates the Dothraki Sea from where the Jogos and I are. They're also a plains-type people. But when Bravos was founded, it was founded by escaped slaves. And some of these escaped slaves were Moonsingers. And so, and the Moonsingers were particularly crucial in founding the city, so they have a special place in Bravos. So that's just kind of funny to think about this religion from way, 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 way far away from a place that the show and the books are probably never going to deal with other than talking about it from a distance is an important religion here in Bravos because of its founding, which I love that kind of detail that Game of Thrones brings out, that kind of taking the time to make this history realistic and compelling and interesting and showing how all these things work together. I love it. Anyway... Jaqen's attitude, I thought was kind of interesting. When he's talking to the waif, when she suggests that Arya's not ready, and he's kind of like, he basically says, eh. <laughs> yeah, what's going to happen if she's not ready? She's going to get killed? All right, she'll get killed. It's a, our God's all about death anyway, right? So what do you... Yeah, how did you read that? You think he's kind of indifferent the, to her fate, or that's just his, that's just his religion? That's how it works? The flip side of that is, why are they putting so much effort in if he doesn't care? Right, so that's I, why it's I, a I puzzle. Know. Yeah, it was interesting. Um... Maybe he's just trying to calm the wave, you know what I mean? Maybe he's, he thinks she cares too much. You know, maybe mm -hmm. he's pretending to care less than he does just to get her to chill out. We'll and see. It, what is she concerned with? Is maybe she's concerned that he's gonna that she's going to give away some secrets or something like spill some faceless man secrets? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but she's probably right. I mean, as she walked away, she had that big smile on her face like, all right, I get to go do something. Yeah. I get to maybe kill somebody. It's like, eh. <laughs> that's definitely, uh, so she's right. <laughs> she's not ready to be no one. She's not ready to even maybe not be someone else. Although she does a good job of it. I was going to say, she's not no one yet. She's just being someone she's else. She's just being someone so, else, right. Yeah. yeah, she's not nobody. And so how about the actual scene along the warfare? What did you think about that? Uh, I thought it was interesting, too. It. It took me a second to kind of piece together what was going on. If I understand right, that guy basically is selling life insurance. Yeah, he's a, but he's a and, crooked life insurance salesman. Right. It's, interesting that, they, if, it's interesting that they called him a gambler. You know, yeah. I was like, I thought that made it more confusing. Cause well, I thought it is a gamble. I, insurance is yeah. a gamble. Sorts, I took that but. to be Jenkins' way of describing what he is. He's mm -hmm. a gambler, okay. and uh, I don't know if the but average person gambler. on the streets would call him a gambler, right? Mm -hmm. um, but but the idea is you're gambling. The, the only way to lose is if the person dies. Well, if they die, they can't prove they lost. You know what it is? So their families get screwed. So who can help them? Who can do something about this? We can do something only about this. Only the faceless men. Right. Which, again, though, I don't know. First of all, I want to say I don't know if this is like a role the faceless men are taking on in general as, as part of Bravosians. Is it part of, is it institutionalized? Shouldn't that guy know better if that's the case? <laughs> it makes it seem more like someone has come to them with this issue and are deciding to take it on. And so he's assigning Arya to deal with this. And maybe that's why Arya is not ready is because she is a little more reveling in the idea of exacting revenge than in just doing this nameless mission. As uh, Yeah. You know. And I think they really telegraphed how the murder is going to go down. Did you pick up on that? I assume she's going to get him poisoned in the vinegar. And exactly. Yeah. That, they really kind of spelled that out. They show the vinegar, pouring is like, and then he, he asks for vinegar, and you're like, ah. Then he gives him this vile liquid. It's like, well, that's yeah. pretty true. And he orders four of them, so she's even got time to 
Yeah. You know, like, I don't know, get away. Or to, she turns her back, too, when she's pouring the vinegar. So it's, it's all just, everything's right there. It's all set up. So that could mean that it doesn't go the way we expect because it's so straightforward. But it also could go exactly the way we think it will. But you can also see why she has to become someone else and why she can't mess up on a street name. She has, she really has to be this girl. You know what yes, I mean? Yes, yes, she uh, does. And I, I sort of took it to be that she didn't just make this story up, that she actually went out there every day and made herself known to the community and spread her story. Everyone knows who she is. She really is someone else now. She really did save up money and buy another car. I could be wrong, but I'm taking weeks to have gone by here. Oh, definitely. Like she gets, she, she talks about how her route is, the first thing I do is I meet to see this girl, Lara, every day. Yeah. And she gets, she buys, you know, four or six clams and moves on. So that's, they, and the way they showed it, those two knew each other. She recognized, they recognize each other. So yeah, she's, yeah. you're right. It's definitely been a while. So, so if she definitely was ever a lot of time questioned, she can't say the wrong street name or be more <laughs> suspicious. Someone that's will true. think she's lying, even if she makes a mistake, even if she's not actively telling a lie, she can't make mistakes of truth either. That's that a very sense. good point. Yeah. I, I don't think that it was a brief glimpse. I think this whole scene, it, there's not, not a, maybe it's, it's a little Aria. We get, we kind of get these Aria hasn't been in a lot of episodes this season, but when we, we, when we get these scenes, they're very compelling, but they're still kind of moving us along a little bit gradually, which makes sense because she's still a relatively young girl and she's learning to be something incredible from what it looks like from what we've seen jay can do we've seen the the powers of the faceless man she's learning something really important and major and difficult so it would be silly for it to pee over quickly suddenly just be, learn it yeah. all but what did you have any more expectations for this plot line? Do you have any, any other kind of predictions or or what do you any anything you can see about going forward well, uh, th things I've mentioned before, I, I wonder how it plays into the overarching storyline of zombies in the north and dragons in the, in the east. It's kind of hard to see how she fits uh, into that, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, and the closest connection I've got is that Marin Trent and Mace Tyrell just went to Bravos, and the Bravos Bank is concerned about the Lannisters' money they owe them, and Stannis is indebted to them now. So and Marin Trent's on her list. And Marin, right, yeah. So I can't see connections but it seems pretty down the road before they come tied together but uh and Marin Trant killing Marin Trant would be something that Arya would do that's not something that no one would do right 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 so whether she'll continue on this path to be a, a faceless one or whether or not the path on a faceless one will coincide with the path that Arya would have had anyway so maybe she'll just get partial training and then just kind of go off on her she'll be some hybrid northern girl with some faceless man abilities with her own sword, because she stashed it away. Presumably she'll retrieve it at some point. Yeah. Maybe not, but I would think so. And maybe that's even part of what the Waif is worried about, that she'll get a certain degree of training and then abandon, and they're wasting their time with her. And they've know? created an element to their... Created a monster. Right. Yeah. That, and that's what they would have... Yeah, from their beliefs, she's... she's. It's not their job to decide who dies. The many-faced god decides. They're, they're facilitators. They don't, they don't re seek revenge. Other people come to them seeking revenge, and if they're cause is worthy so to speak then they get taken up that's something that isn't fully that's something that I, I will this isn't a book spoiler but i'll say that the logic behind everything and how the faceless men work and how people petition them is explained a little bit more thoroughly and it's okay. it's not too late for them to explain it a little more thoroughly in the show but it looks like they've kind of moved past that and just given us a few of the broader strokes and focused more on aria's character and development rather than how it all works they may have even talked about some of it in one of those behind the scenes or maybe one of the maybe in one of the 
Blu-ray history and lore videos, they talk about it a bit more in depth. So there's that. Okay, any more on uh, Arya and the Faceless Man? Should we move on? Yep, yep. Okay, let's go to King's Landing. King's Landing with Cersei and Septa Unella, who I had been referring to as Super Septa. I wasn't sure that was still her. She doesn't look quite as big, but that's because we keep seeing it from the angle of Cersei sitting down, and everyone looks huge when you're sitting down, I suppose. But I checked the, the credits. That is the same person, according to IMDb. Uh, is kind of nasty, isn't she? She's not just um, trying to make her confess. She's she's kind of playing back and forth with Cersei. On she smacked her with a spoon, poured the water, and like kind of uh, kind of mean. What did you think about these interactions in general, and, and about Cersei's position? Uh, a little torn because you know partly you feel like Cersei just deserves whatever she gets, you know. <laughs> uh, but on some level, a little I shot feel and like, there. Yeah, on um, some level, I feel like the Septa, the Church, the Sparrow, the powers that be, you know, want justice served, want truth found. They're serving the seven gods. It doesn't seem like it is or should be her role to punish Cersei. She hasn't even had a trial yet, right? And even if she genuinely wants a confession, this just isn't the way to do it. It's a meaningless confession, even if she gave it. First of all, what does she expect? She expect, oh, you're thirsty? Confess. Does she expect, oh, okay, I did it. Please let me have some water now. You know <laughs> what I mean? Even if Cersei believes she would get water or whatever else from her, it just, it doesn't make sense to treat someone this way to me. Uh, unless you just medieval. want to be mean. <laughs> and someone who just wants to be mean doesn't seem like they'd be in this position in the church, you know? So it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I'm not sure. Maybe she'll get her own, you know what I mean? Maybe uh, she you know, doesn't deserve her position. Maybe the sparrow will chastise her. Maybe the sparrow told her, get a confession, however, Cersei doesn't deserve any mercy. You know, I'm not sure. But generally speaking, other than seeing Cersei punish... I don't like it. Uh, and at least part of why I don't like it is because it doesn't quite make sense to me. Hmm. She looked pretty bad in there, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Pretty torn up. Like, uh, her legs were a mess. Her hair is all ratty. Kind of like Marjorie. Kind of looked like Marjorie did. Don't know how Marjorie's doing right now. Yeah, I wonder if Marjorie's also being having confessions demanded and smacked in the head and being deprived of water, or, you know. I'm quite possibly. Sure. Marjorie's only accused of perjury at this point. It's yeah. not, not nearly as bad as Cersei's accused of incest. Adultery, perjury, adultery, and murdering the king. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are lots of more serious crimes. <laughs> now, we Marjorie all... even maybe has some level of defense or understanding towards. I was trying to protect my brother. What do you want from me? You know? Yeah, yeah, that's true. It doesn't seem if they both face the maximum penalty for their crimes, you would expect Cersei's punishment to be far worse than Marjorie's. Probably far, far worse than Loras's too. At least I hope so. Can I hope the Seven Pointed Star doesn't have buggery up there with murdering the king? Yeah. This is an equal crime. Like, please, come on, that's a bit much. Now we also get a scene with Kyburn coming in to talk to Cersei. So we see maybe maybe someone who is at least still loyal to her makes sense. It seems you unlikely seem that sure anyone else would have put Kyburn in that position. You know, like no one else would have probably elected him to be Master of Whisperers. It doesn't yeah. seem like. Tommen wouldn't have done that on his own. Robert wouldn't have done that. Pycelle was against him. Pretty much everybody hates Kyburn except Cersei. They're all kind of creeped out by him and, and respect the Citadel's decision to strip, them as, strip him of his chain was probably the correct thing. But Cersei, of course, is a different kind of a different sort of animal, isn't she? <laughs> and he, his main piece of news is that Sir Kevin has returned to the city and won't meet with Cersei. What, did you, what do you think about that? That was... We've left a... Uh, 
kind of harkens back to him standing up to her and yeah. being like, I'm not going to be a part of this. It, it makes a little sense, too, because, I, in fact, Kyber might be putting himself in personal danger going to meet with her. Being being an ally to Cersei at this moment might be a death sentence or at least a jail sentence. Yeah, know? it doesn't so, shine, It doesn't look good, that's for yeah, sure. Like, it's sort of known, at least kind of suspected in general, that Cersei did some of these things. Now she's arrested for it. It might not be, might not be politically appropriate for Kevin to visit her, even if he wanted to. He doesn't want to anyway. <laughs> I don't think he likes her in the first place. But uh, but you can see how he might even justify. Although you do think maybe he would send a messenger. Uh, maybe he did. Kyburn maybe is a messenger, you know. By the way, this also shows that Cersei's been in, in, in there for a while. He'd gone all the way back to Casterly Rock, apparently. So Cersei's been in there long enough for Kevin to be summoned and to arrive, to take his place at Hand of King and to refuse to visit her and a few other things. So yeah. that, that shows, I guess it's maybe a similar amount of time that's happened with the in the Arya scenes. Yeah, yeah, weeks maybe have passed. Yeah. Right, which kind of fits in some of the other things. You got, you know, John has done some traveling. There's yeah, yeah. other things, and maybe the, the Sansa Theon scene, on the other hand, looks like it's just right immediately after the last episode, basically. So, keeping track of time though is sort of a futile exercise in the show. The show definitely plays fast and loose with with time, although within not within its own plot lines it plays fast and loose with with regards to the how the timeline of one plot line lines up with the others it's pretty good about within one plot line about things being fairly consistent yeah. i can also see i think it's fair for if one plot line well, i'm making this up let's just say one plot line lasts a week and another plot line lasts two months i can see them showing us splicing those together you know the a week's worth of time in one plot line being spread out and months worth of timeline another one being crunched together per the episode's progression is that i think that's a reasonable thing yeah. it starts to get awkward if people cross paths from those pl- plot lines but i don't i guess Littlefinger came from yeah winterfell to <laughs> his Lane. traveling is a bit hard to but, explain uh, let's just but put i, I it don't nicely. think too much about it if yeah. I, did, I might be disappointed but <laughs> it's it's not really a worth giving a lot of consideration yeah. to we just we just all have to accept that they didn't want to put a lot of time into thinking about it and honestly it's not that important it, it could be made to fit and if it did well we wouldn't have noticed it probably yeah. and that's really all that it would change i can also uh, they're not doing it, it's not that I, it's a little annoying but i don't think it's there's that another one that's a little more glaring is uh gilly's baby yeah we t- not growing up <laughs> gilly's baby but that's one i silly. also understand from a production standpoint it's hard to like make sure because they don't film everything right in order they're like all right here's the first day Film all the scenes in all the different locations. Next day, film all you know they they're filming at different scenes out of order in different locations, separated from different crews, and on and on. And it's hard to have the right age baby at every scene along the way. Also, same thing with things like you know haircuts and shaving. I'm a little more understanding of that kind of thing. Well, yeah, with with the baby thing, also I got to say it's almost certainly a lot easier to have a baby than a toddler by like a mile yeah yeah like having some little kid you actually have to cast an actor with a baby you just get baby you know just baby any baby will do (laughs) you don't even have to have a real baby you just need baby noises and you know a a bassinet or whatever not a bad whatever a bundle you know and that's that's baby there you go it's just so much easier if you have a toddler then you have to who who wants to work with toddlers on a movie set or on a TV show set? Like, please, yeah, that sounds like a nightmare. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm they could not, use the. Budget. I love kids, but everybody, even parent, you know, I'm sure is with me on that one. They could use all that budget that they would have to spend on dealing with extra kids and casting and 
to make your timelines fit up. They could just use all that instead to have a good action sequence in Dor- <laughs> uh... <laughs> Touche. Well struck, Sean. Now, we also have... What else do we have about King's Landing? I think that's pretty much it for Cersei for now. We're, we're kind of in a wait-and-see point. Like, how is this whole in-jail thing going to resolve? Kyburn dropped a little hint there at the end as he was walking out. The project is still ongoing. Yeah. I yeah. wonder if that's if that something he has Assume in his mind. Assume that's talking about Gregor. That's what my yeah, assumption the, the, there. But, the, but still, what's he going to do with Gregor? Is Gregor going to come in and kill all the faith bust, militants? Bust like? through the church and just take out everybody? <laughs> how does that... That's the same problem that... You know, when Tommen's like, I'll just go kill him. Well, they'll just kill Marjorie right yeah, after. They'll just, they'll just they'll kill, Cersei kill Cersei, too. Yeah. <laughs> so Probably. Uh, I guess maybe if it's a Frankenstein's monster charging through, they don't necessarily feel like that's an attack from the king and respond by killing the prisoners. Yeah, just don't put a white but, cloak on him. Yeah. Came from. Put a Stark banner on him. <laughs> <laughs> Wrap him in direwolf clothing. Like, give him a direwolf in like a... Of Sun and Spear of House yeah. of the Martells. And we're like, look, it's just some sort of stark Dornish guy. I don't know. <laughs> that's that's who did it. Like, we don't make monsters like that down here. One of the thought, not so directly about Cersei, more about King's Landing in general, is let's just say these charges come to fruition. And and even Kyborn Warner, like, look, their belief is gonna outweigh logic. Not to mention, you actually are guilty. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> but even if you're just going to keep claiming you're not, and they have no real proof, they're still going to believe it and charge you and find you guilty. I hate to tell you, Cersei, but that's what's going to happen. Just here. like Kyburn said, it's like their standard of the standard of proof the church right. has is not the same as what the crown is. Yeah. And what he means by that is they don't need a lot of proof. They just yeah. hearsay is enough for them. And well. And Kyburn pointing that out, like you said, well, you really did do it too. Yeah. And if all they need is hearsay, and you actually are guilty. Just denying it's not going to cut it. Yeah. Well, beyond that, there's an implication beyond that. Like, so, so yeah, Cersei, you're in real trouble. But also, that means Tom is not the king. What? So now what? You know what I mean? What, how, what's going to happen next? Yeah. Is Kevin going to just get to keep being hand of the king? I don't. I feel <laughs> like there's such chaos and turmoil pending in King's Landing. I can't even guess. How well Littlefinger's going to take advantage of it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the man who loves Cass most might, might be too chaotic even for him. What I kind of expect is for Elena and Littlefinger to start to... Well, let me say, what I had been expecting is Elena and Littlefinger to, to manipulate Tommen. But it seems like he's secluded himself and Kevin is here now. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if or how that... Maybe it'll still happen. I don't know if Kevin will just blow off Elena and Littlefinger... You know, if one, I can imagine him blowing off Littlefinger. Imagine him ha- having a similar negative opinion of him that Tywin and some other people have had, right? But maybe not Elena. He might understand her importance and might respect her position and so on and so on. So, but he might also understand how precarious his position is. I wonder if he believes mm. that Cersei's innocent or not. I wonder if you, he yeah. kind of knows it too. What is in Kevin's mind? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, I, I wonder if. T- Tywin was in denial, but that doesn't mean Kevin is. Right. Although Tywin might, Kevin might get most of his information from Tywin. Right. But uh, but he, surely he has his is own he, even if he wasn't in denial or was before or whatever, whatever, at some point he might wake up to the truth. Yes. Uh, and at that point, does he continue trying to protect Cersei and the family name? Or is he like, cut his losses and tell the faith militant, okay, yeah, execute her. She's crazy. I don't know how we got mixed up in this. I'm sorry. Who do you want to be the king? You know, like, well... <laughs> Lannister bows to your wishes, you know, I don't know, I don't know which direction he'll go, uh, or which direction Elena will go, mm. um, 
And, and I, I fear that Littlefinger might just get thrown in jail, too. I, I feel like he needs to get out of King's Landing. I'm not sure, but that's kind of what I think. But Yeah, it's 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 a weird to be worried for Littlefinger. But yeah. it's in his best interest, perhaps, to at least be very careful where he treads right now. Yeah, you've got this, this guy in charge. A charge, and what I mean, the, the High Sparrow is effectively in charge now. Tommen is powerless, and the High Sparrow seems to have all the cards. He's got, he's got hostages from both royal families. Yeah. Both yeah. half the royal family. Like, that is an unprecedented amount of power. But he's not the type to use, to leverage that in a traditional political way. Yeah. He's just doing what his doctrine tells him to do. And he's proceeding with full zeal in doing so. And his followers are with him, it seems. You know, interesting parallel. I just now thought of this. Tyrion's asking Danny, Hey, how well did you do ruling with only the common people? <laughs> How well is the High Sparrow going to do ruling with only, like, he kind of gave that threat to Olenna, like, at some point, the few stopped, the many stopped fearing the few, and then shit's going down, and it's and it's gone down, but at some point, if you want to maintain your position ruling, you're going to have, you can't just have commoners riding in the streets against the rich people, you know, what do you, what's his... You really touched on something important there. I was saving that question because someone asked it for us. Okay. I thought it was a really uh-huh. good question to ask you. So you, you kind of, you're, you're, you're too smart for your own good there. Well, <laughs> I have that later in our notes, so we'll come back to it. Okay. Uh, it was a Watchner question, and I want to make sure that Watchner gets credit for asking the question. But yeah, you, that is a very good consideration there. The, the, whole, the whole parallel of the, com- the power of the commoners and the power of the nobility versus how a ruler has to interact with all that. And, and we're seeing this, the situation that Danny is in is starting to become a situation in King's Landing, but with a much different kind of ruler. Danny and the High Sparrow. Of course, the High Sparrow isn't actually nominated. He, you know, he's just kind of the most powerful man in King's Landing. He isn't actually recognized as some, you know, ruler over everybody. It just kind of worked out that way. Danny is actually, you know, trying to be the queen or what have you. But I agree, that's a really, really interesting parallel. So, here I just said we'll talk about it later, and I'm going on and on about it. So let's move on. Unless you have anything else for King's Landing, let us go to Winterfell. Ready for Winterfell? Sure, yeah. Winterfell. Sansa and Theon. She, we, we, we were thinking maybe that she would use that little weapon thing on Theon. That seems a little less likely now. It could still happen if, you know, there's, he's still, he didn't want to tell her any more. He didn't want to give away any more than he did, although he gave away... Something huge. What did you think about that reveal? I'm not sure. I, I, I thought it was interesting. My question is, does he run back to Ramsey and say, Ramsey, I'm so sorry, but I accidentally told Sansa about Brandon Rickon. You know, like that's <laughs> kind of what I expect. Uh, also, much like Sansa realizing that John is like head of the, the, the Night's Watch, like maybe there's a things for her to be bring some kind of light into her life, but I don't know how they actually affect her position. It almost makes her position worse. You want to brand a Ricker on alive means she's more expendable. Ramsey can't just kill her, you know? So, and Ramsey does know that they're still alive. Like, uh, if anything, I feel like she should be more afraid for her position than before. Well, I'm not sure about that because she should maybe be more, she'd be afraid for them because Ramsey's still is going to want to have a child off of her and eliminate the other people. There's no other way for them to create... Uh, a Bolton Stark type, which is which is what they want, through, without Sansa, Rickon and and and, Ar- and Bran don't give them that op- that possibility. Unless Walter has a daughter and they marry him and Bran. <laughs> That's true. That's pretty far fetched <laughs> and down the road, but uh, 
<clears throat> that's true. That would that is something that I guess could that is a, a an avenue I hadn't considered. But yeah, that's that's obviously pretty chintzy uh, with having a girl. It's surviving and. And it's less what that. the Boltons want too. They would rather have the son carrying on the line. Yeah, they still have to. They'd have to than, force Rickon into that, which yeah. is not something he might even go along with willingly. <laughs> so I wonder. Speaking of Rickon, when the, whenever he makes another appearance, you wonder if they'll have to switch out actors or not on that kid. He's like, I think he's like twelve now. I really like. I really like Art Parkinson, but he's kind of like a lot of these characters. He's getting maybe too old to play his role. Well, I assume time is passing in the show too. Like, I don't oh know yeah, for sure. But like, uh, he's supposed to be like six, but he's he's like that's harder. You know, he's hard to pull off. Like, they could make it maybe push that he's well, like he seven or eight. Well, he was supposed to be six before. He's supposed to be six now. Uh, I'm not sure. He was like four at the beginning of the books. So, yeah, and I think I, like I think almost everyone's about two years older. Yeah, almost everyone's about two years older. So let's say he's about six at the beginning. So that would still make him only about eight or nine. So maybe he yeah. could maybe a 12, 13 year old could pull off eight or nine. But that's kind of pushing it because that's when you really yeah. start to especially you can't predict. Like it hasn't happening with was Isaac Hempstead Wright, who was the actor playing Bran. He's just hit a growth spurt. He's really yeah. tall now. He's the one I'm more concerned about having to recast. Now, they don't have to show his legs. So that might... <laughs> they've got a way yeah. around that. But with Rickon, I don't know they have to do... But it will still and... be a little weird to show Hodor carrying him around when he's almost as tall as Hodor. Yeah. I guess Hodor's pretty tall. He fit still, the role really... Be... Bran fit the role really well as when it was when he was initially cast for it. But yeah, he's really kind of aging out of yeah. it. <laughs> I don't. Know, I wonder if there's even knowledge in the world about how casting and contracts work. Because like, uh, not in this season at all. Doesn't seem far fetched for him to not be in next season either. Maybe I agree. Recast as a different actor. I agree. That could very that very much happen. I don't think they'll recast Hodor though. No, I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so moving on from Sansa and Theon, that's kind of got to wait on that. That's a real wait and see situation. We don't know how she's going to react to yeah. the the knowledge that her brother's still alive. It might give her. New life. She's like my some of my family's alive. After all, she might. She certainly seemed to want to know where they were, and that was important to her. And in the behind the episode, Dan and uh, Dan and David talked. I forget which one of them it was. Talked about how to her it was energizing. That's specifically what they said. So that's take that with a grain of salt. Uh, the showrunners are saying that that's what what impact it had on her. That it was really important for her. That it was energizing. That it might give her some more will to live, and that's good. She. Needs a good reason, more of a reason to fight back against Ramsey than just her own self, I suppose. I don't, well, no, I don't suppose that. She has enough reason to fight back on her own. <laughs> but if there wasn't enough reason, that certainly has a lot of reason now. She's not as, she doesn't have as much reason to be in despair about her family all being dead because they're not. Unless Theon is lying. But we know he's not. <laughs> I'm sorry, Reek. Yeah. Theon is not his name. <laughs> okay, so then we have the Bolton campaign chat. I will say real quick, I do want to say that, because uh, I can't remember if I, this is the thought that I feel like I developed after the last episode. Uh, I can't remember for sure if I said it, but I, I feel like Reek is Reek now. Uh, I don't have, uh, I could be wrong, but this is my current prediction. Theon's not helping Sansa. Theon is not Theon. Reek is Reek, and Reek is not helping Sansa. I think he's gone. I think in the same way that we sort of saw John be given these opportunities to leave the wall, and he kept refusing... I think we keep seeing Theon being given these opportunities to leave Ramsey and keeps refusing. Interesting. Maybe John will still leave the wall, but I feel like right <laughs> now he's committed to the wall and Reek is committed to Ramsey. I don't think he's coming around. All right. See how that plays out. I think we might have one of the only time, maybe the only time, Roose Bolton makes a joke in the what I'm once again calling the Bolton campaign chat where we have 
four Bolton general types, advisors. Well, one of them's a maester. That just makes sense. Not, that's certainly not a complaint. We just don't know who they are. They don't get specific names. One of them is probably Steel Shanks Walton, who was one of uh, Bolton's captains. And he was involved with the situation with Jamie and getting him returned and all that. So, not getting him returned, but uh, he was at Hall. And so that's probably, they're probably carrying that same character over, even though he hasn't really, his name hasn't been uttered aloud. Anyway, that's not important. So I love the, I love the joke he makes. They, they, they basically give the commander Bolton guy, whoever he is, talks about the reconnaissance on Stannis's position, says they have this many horsemen, and Bolton says, and how high can their horses jump? And he basically says it very, lays it out. He's like, look, we don't have to do a thing. The snow is doing all our work for us. Why should we lift a finger to go kill them? Snow's going to take care of them for us. Why should we waste a single man? But Ramsay disagrees, doesn't he? He has another plan. What do you think this, what do you think he's got in mind with just 20 men and himself running off to like, and he thought like, I, I had a lot of different ideas as he could sabotage their food supplies, their dwindling food supplies, try to assassinate somebody, which yeah. opens up a lot of different possibilities, infiltrate them, maybe try to join them. I assume it's some sort of, you know, a guerrilla mission, just some sort of attack on the outskirts in the middle of the night, take out a few men just to... Hang on, just to, just to be clear, I have, as you guys know, I have read the books. None of those things I suggested as possibilities are things from the book, because I will have to say that this is different from the books, this, little, this particular suggestion, whether it even happens or not. I don't know. So my questions were not... There's no hidden, you know, sneakiness in that question. I'm just, I'm trying to look at all that. All, the all your other questions have hidden squeaking, squeak, sneakiness, though? Yes, all <laughs> and, of them. Hidden squeakiness. Hidden also. squeakiness. <laughs> uh, all my questions, yes. Another <laughs> prediction I've been making is that there's not going to be a big battle at Winterfell. That's another thought I've been having. Uh, I can't this remember kinda, if this, I this does kind of steer it towards that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was, I... Especially because we already had a big battle, and they don't right. typically have a budget yeah. for multiples. And it, but it was in episode eight, not nine. You know, I the, sneaky. This past week, I've been kind of deciding in my mind that episode nine, what seems maybe would be this big battle at Winterfell that we've been sort of building up to, I don't think it's going to happen. I think that Melisandre and Selyse behind Davos and Stannis's back are going to sacrifice Shireen. And do something. I'll burst some spirit that kills Roose. That doesn't totally make sense because Ramsey's still there. Maybe they'll call Ramsey. Roose will just bend the knee. In fact, I started thinking, why does it even need to be this battle? I'm surprised there's even this conflict between Roose and Stannis. It's like Roose and Stannis both should be like, hey, uh, let's just not fight. And <laughs> you can be king of the north and you can be king of Westeros and just keep moving south. And we don't have to have a battle. I, it almost seems odd to me that they even need to have a battle. It seems like both these men should be able to, like, come to some more peaceful conclusion, some more positive, cooperative conclusion. Especially, and I guess maybe word hasn't spread yet, but especially at this point. <laughs> is Roos doing this for Cersei? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Maybe he doesn't know Cersei's in prison yet. But we just talked about how it seems like weeks have gone by. Maybe even weeks gone by with a storm. The ravens can't travel. I don't know. It just doesn't make sense for the... It seems like for a million different reasons, there's not going to be this big battle at Winterfell. And so I thought... There's going to be some big battle in the north with the wildlings and zombies. Well, that just happened this episode. So now, <laughs> what will be the big thing next episode? Maybe it won't be a big epic battle, but it'll still be you know an exciting, momentous moment with Ramsay attacking in the middle of the night with some guerrilla force. And I can see <clears throat> in the midst of a storm and confusion, maybe they cut some section off and we have a battle of like, you know Roos and uh, or uh, you know Ramsay and some henchmen and with Davos trying to defend Stannis 
Maybe even somehow Brienne and Podrick get mixed up in this. I'm not sure. Yeah, it'd be but, interesting uh, if Brienne and Podrick followed this detachment of men somehow yeah, and yeah, wound yeah. up up there, and then she'd have this weird situation. Then she'd actually be near Stannis, and that would be... Yeah. Wouldn't that be something? I kind of doubt she's going to leave Sansa's side at this point. Side at this point, but he might think she's with them for some reason or yeah. other. I don't, yeah. I don't know why she'd get that idea, but... It is possible. Ramsey might do something crazy like take Sansa with him. <laughs> Whoa, that yeah. would be that would be unusual. Uh, so, yeah, so there's a lot of possibilities. And from Roose's point of view, it seems like it's a good risk to let Ramsey take. He's got a child on the way. If something goes bad, something backfires, well, he's yeah. all he loses is 20 men and his crazy psychopath son. But if Ramsey proves himself, all the better. You know, it's yeah. kind of a, what we what we call in the gambling world a free roll. Roos can't really lose, but he can win. Yeah, I don't think that he... Another th- thought that I have, and I think other people share, is that Roos doesn't care about Ramsey. <laughs> Ramsey's a free roll, right? Like, yeah. as soon as Ramsey's use is used up or craziness has gone too far, Roos... Just, I guess he can't just straight up kill him, right? He doesn't want to be a kinslayer. But send him off to battle. There you go. Yeah, good job, Ramsey. Go ahead. Go go go. Do some crazy mission. And uh, if Ramsey survives all this and keeps doing like a good job, quote unquote, then Bolton might have no trouble handing off. You know, like okay, you're the heir still. That's all good. And you know, he dies. If you know, Roos could just die one day, and then he won't care. He'll be dead. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's interesting. I think I think I think that's accurate. I think that Roos is just playing a wait-and-see kind of, I'm a ruthless waiter-and-seer type. If, if this works out, I'll capitalize. If it doesn't, well, I've got other plans and, and other opportunities. Now, of course, he is really coming down to it with the situation with Stannis. That's not something that's just a, that's not a free roll. <laughs> that is something that really he has to take care of one way or another. And he thinks the weather's going to do it. Well, he might be right, but first we're going to see what Ramsey's going to do, apparently. Now, a shout-out to Javi Marcos of podcast... Uh, Hielo y Fuego, a podcast of ice and fire in Spanish. For Spanish language uh, listeners, there is something for you. If you have not heard of the podcast Hielo y Fuego, then you have that to look forward to. Check it out. He, in particular, wanted wanted us to discuss this question of Stannis and Ramsay and what's going to happen, what Ramsay has in mind. At this point, I think we're just guessing. So, more to come on that. Do you have any other thoughts on this situation, or shall we move on? Uh, we can probably move on, I guess. Okay, cool. Real quick as well, folks, on Amazon.com, this week's recommendation for Amazon.com is the lens of ice and fire. We talk a lot about where things are happening, what's going on. The geography is really important. A a famous historian whose name escapes me at this point once said that history is 90% geography. He may have been exaggerating a bit, but it's true. And George knows that. George understands that. And looking at the maps and understanding them well makes a lot of things more clear. It also has some juicy tidbits in it. The Tower of Joy, for example, is on the map, or one of the many maps that comes with the Lands of Ice and Fire. You get world maps, you get maps of Westeros, you get maps of the North, you get maps of all over the South, both from a high scale and from a more close-up view. Really good stuff, really fun. We've got a lot of the maps hung around the house here. Let's go to the wall. We have basically a couple of short scenes here. It's really just, well, I guess it's just one scene. We have Ollie and we have Sam and Gilly. And it's pretty interesting, this conversation. It looks like there's some undertones here. We have Sam kind of telling Ollie about what John has to make an unpopular decision. And you see this... um, 
you see that Ollie is probably... I get the sense that he's just really hurt and confused. His his best friends in the watch are kind of buddying up to the people that killed his family. He doesn't really seem to have a distinction in his mind between good wildlings and bad wildlings. To him, they're just all wildlings. They're just a conglomerate. Sam was trying to get him to see it a different way, but it, did you get the feel? Did you, what did you, did you think he made his point or, or no? Just because he makes his point doesn't mean all his emotions change. Right. Ollie might have even understood it on some level anyway, but maybe he needs Sam to say it to him, needs someone to reinforce, you know. He's also, he's a pretty young kid, we got to keep that in mind. Yeah. I, a couple thoughts I've had. One, uh, I was wondering at one point, if Ollie ever came to understand that he killed Igret, who Igret was. It seemed like pretty public knowledge that John had an affair with a wildling. Does Ollie know that he killed the woman that John loved? Well, he saw him, he would have seen him clutching her body afterwards. That would have had to, he would have been like, huh. If it very, he may not have yeah. fully understood, but also, you think that he has the information. He might would have. He might not have. There was a lot of chaos going on. Yeah. In fact, that was my complaints with that episode, is that, is John the only person that had someone who died that he cares about? What if yeah, every kind of someone silly, yeah. everyone like stops for a minute and has their moment of death and just mourning? <laughs> like, if there's a brick of battle, John, come on. People are dying left and right. You don't have time yeah. for this. Ollie might not have been able to just stand there with a bow and arrow in his hand watching John. And Igret, like, huh. like, you know, he might have shot arrows at someone else, run away, someone's chasing after him. He might have seen it, but it's never been mentioned. Yeah. Uh, well, there's a parallel here, 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 parallel here, too. What is... Ollie think of Gilly. She's a wildling. Yeah, yeah. And Sam is in love with her. And Ollie he seems might not to be like fairly tolerant of it, but that doesn't mean he brought Sam. He still, <laughs> at least to this point, he's liked Sam. He, you know, he thought enough of him to bring him. He also might be that. more tolerant of Gilly, and in fact, many on the wall might be more tolerant of her uh, because she's not. I've pointed this out before. She's not really a wildling. She's like wildling right. by birth, but not by necessarily she by culture. She technically was born north of the wall, but she was pretty much a, a rape slave. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, so I don't know if it's, and I don't know how much everyone else understands that, but I think they should know. She came from Craster's. They know who Craster is. There might be an extra level of uh, acceptance or tolerance of her as yeah. not being a wildling, you know. But he might not want to test that too much, huh? True, true. <laughs> uh, well, those two guys certainly were, and uh, maybe on some level, you know, like the the rapists and some of these men on the wall, or, you know, it's, it's, you know, that, you know, I guess every bad person wasn't part of the mutiny and got killed off at Craster's. There's still maybe some level of uh, badness left in people on the wall, you know. What did you think of Sam's speech in general to him? His, his, do you think it was effective? or I mean, you, you said that you're not sure. Even if he made his point, it may not have affected all his emotional state. He said the right things, I think, but I, or mostly said most of the right things. But I don't know. If, it's not like Sam was like thinking about how to explain everything to Ollie. I finally got a chance, you know. It's kind of like <laughs> suddenly thrust on him. After being smashed in the head, you know, like losing his virginity. There's a lot in Sam's mind, <laughs> you know. Like, he doesn't necessarily have all the answers for Ollie. Uh, <clears throat> my, my other thought, it's a little broader thought. I might, I might ramble a little bit here, but uh, I just started drawing these parallels between the Soviet Union. You know what I mean? How the Not the, yet. Well, at a point, and it's a lot of this maybe is there's it's a lot deeper than I could possibly explain. It's a few quick moments here, but they were sort of the evil empire. They were just bad guys. They're just generically they're bad. Like in every movie, Soviets were bad guys. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? But eventually, their country was like falling apart, and kind of like 
were even coming to the West for help. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's not like every single person, millions and millions of people across thousands and thousands of miles of land all across Asia and Europe, they're all evil communists trying to kill everyone that's in yeah. America. You know that's what I mean? That's ridiculous. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Same thing with the wildlings. Yeah. They've just for generations been presented as the bad guys. And suddenly the bad guys need help. And we're kind of faced with the fact that they're not all bad guys. And that even the ones that are bad guys on some level are just fighting. We're not all good guys. We're, we go kill them. We block them off. Who says just because you're on one side or the other of this wall, you're good or bad, you know? Again, rambling more, but just the thoughts <laughs> that were going through my head. I, I like, that's a pretty good analogy. Yeah. I think it was Star Trek Six. Star Trek VI. <laughs> You're really going all over they, the place. <laughs> they were doing a similar thing with the Klingons. The Klingon Empire was just mm. generally the bad guys. And they were all also kind of like wild, ferocious, honorable warriors or whatever, you know, oh, against yeah, yeah. the more ostensibly, you know, I want to say, you know, the Federation or the whatever, the, the Westeroses were the civilized, you know, civilized, you know, versus these wild Klingons. But the, in, the, in the movie, the plot is like the, their planet, maybe their home planet or mine, something blew up and it was like this devastating thing. And they were coming for help. Like, look, we know we've been your enemies forever. And we can't even get our own people to agree with this. But we need help. And we're coming to you for help. And Spock, who like had this personal vendetta against Klingons, his son was killed by them, right? So, yeah. And he and Spock at this point was... Spoiler alert. Uh, Spock was, <laughs> uh, was like a, some sort of ambassador or senator or something, you know? Yeah. And he nominates Kirk to go visit the Klingons as a show of peace to negotiate at all and Klingons like and this and Spock in justifying this to the council and to Kirk says only Nixon could go to China China also bad guys you know communist China the US was still recognizing the the original Chinese government not the which is almost silly uh, on a certain level I can see it as a matter of principle but a billion people and their government were being ignored for the sake of this one little government because we just didn't respect. And Nixon was on that side. It was a conservative Republican stance to not recognize communist China. He gets elected president, he goes to China and recognizes them and so on mm. and so on. So here we are, John, head of the Night's Watch, fighting, dying, killing against wildlings. The, the communist wildlings. The bad guys <laughs> that have been the enemies forever. And now they have to only, and Tormund's like, you have to go. Tormund has a red beard. Uh, yeah, communist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I know that's a lot. I don't know if any of that makes sense, but that's kind of how I, what I see here is that these people who just for generations have been the bad guys, and both in a kind of a abstract sense, but for Ollie and other people in a very real sense. But at this point, we're all in the same boat, and uh, someone's got to negotiate this peace, and. Only Nixon can go to China. That's what I keep thinking about John <laughs> Only going. John can go to hard home. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So it's true, and Tormund said that he's like, "You're the only one that can make this happen. You're they're they're not going to make a deal with someone who isn't in charge, someone yeah. with with someone without authority." And from John's perspective, even if he wanted to send somebody else, who would who would possibly represent the interests that he has in mind? This yeah. is his plan is pretty radical. From the night, I mean, it's extremely radical. Integrating the Night's Watch. With the wildlings is extremely unprecedented and just unthinkable to people on both sides. As we see in the in the actual hard home scene, there's some that are just like, no, nope, nope, not, not gonna, gonna ally with crows at this not gonna juncture. Do it. Not gonna do it. <laughs> wouldn't be prudent. Wouldn't be prudent. A thousand <laughs> points of ice. <laughs> so, well, as far as the the situation at the wall. 
it's really just a segue to the main scene because of course the the wall is where the night's watch is but where the night's watch is important business is happening is far away to north and east again if you had the lands of ice and fire you could look exactly to see where hard home was and have a sense of where it is in relation to everything else so let's do that let's go ahead and move on to the epic hard home we start with Tormund and John with the initial greeting. We have the Lord of Bones, a.k.a. Rattleshirt, who approaches Tormund and kind of acts as a de facto leader of types of sorts. He's, a, he's kind of a, a big wig type. He's pretty high up in the esteem of, of most wildlings. Tormund knows this. And I think this is an important reminder that the wildlings do respect strength over everything else, and the way these two kind of settled things was by Tormund beating the crap out of out of uh, Lord of Bones and leaving it at that. I took it to be more than beating the crap out of him. I think he killed him. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think he think was he dead. Him. <laughs> I think he probably killed him, and if he didn't, well, nobody helped him. He was lying there, bleeding to death, and then the whites came. So, yeah, he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he might be a white now, but... Oh, in fact, I... In fact... Prediction. We're going to see him again as a zombie. That'd be cool. <laughs> a zombie decked out in bone armor. That's pretty... Uh, yeah. He's got his own bones showing and the bones of someone else. That's that's pretty terrifying. That's the stuff of nightmares right there, I think. <laughs> so that was the... In a sense, Torment had the stronger argument, you might say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> his point was more forcibly made. And they, they listened to it. They kind of respected it. Like the crowd kind of parted for him and they marched towards the hall and started chatting. They had their... I guess we'll call it a parlay. And they, they got to talking. We have this guy with the big axe, the Then That character was apparently called Loboda. 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 And he refers to John as King Crow, which I think is a pretty interesting nickname to give him. It kind of denigrates him because the wildlings are not about kneeling. They didn't call Mance Raider. They didn't say, what happened to King Mance? They didn't they say, what happened to our king? They're like, what happened to Mance? Yeah. King Crow is kind of like High Sparrow. Yeah, it is. You're right. Lord I, of I Turtles. didn't think of that. I did not think of that. That's hilarious. And but they do mean that to be denigrated. They, they mean oh that yeah, to, yeah it's a negative much, yeah. connotation. And here's a funny thing. Every time I think my beard is getting somewhere, I'm rem first of all, I've I've just can't live <laughs> up to this here. Sean's beard is just so much more epic than mine. But here we are at this wildling scene where there's just so many epic beards everywhere. I've never felt more like a you know a boy with whiskers than seeing <laughs> these guys with their amazing beards now even more importantly really importantly here the band mastodon appeared in this episode the heavy metal band from atlanta which is our town sean's got a mastodon shirt on representing here for those of you who aren't watching members brent hines who already has bunch of crazy tattoos and curly red hair and looks like a wildling already <laughs> acts like perfectly yeah he does act <laughs> like one every every band in atlanta has a brent hines story and i've heard a lot of them because i've been going to show metal shows in atlanta for 15 years and i've gotten to know some people in the business and there's some crazy stories about this guy he's amazing now the drummer was of this of the band mastodon was also in this scene and his name is pronounced braun so there you go. How about that? Braun, spelled with an A, but it's otherwise pronounced the same as Braun, as in Braun the Sellsword. So it's pretty cool. I didn't really see where they were. I just caught this from their fan page that they were in this show. So if you guys notice specifically when they appeared on screen, give us the timestamp. I'd like to see that. 
I believe they were in that in that confrontation we were talking about when uh, what's the name shirt Le- uh, rattle, rattle shirt, shirt Lord he of was Bones. like yeah in the background they were in the background at that moment that okay well, there might have been other parts that. too I just saw a screenshot of that right so. on so we'll keep a lookout for that if you guys already know send us a timestamp and I want to point out. They're a freaking awesome band, even if they're not from Atlanta or not in Game of Thrones. They're just like <laughs> they did write a song called "White Walker" for the uh, Game of Thrones mixtape as well. So they've they've they're pretty deep in the old fandom in their own way. Now, yeah, I've I've seen them ten times probably. They are great. <laughs> okay, Matt, and of course they fit in so well. There's mastodons in the show, right? That's right. Yes, <laughs> the elephants, the big. Uh, Big woolly mammoths. Maybe as the ships are sailing back, there will be a white whale. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Okay, so this is a good point to, to remind people that there's generations and generations. We touched on, we were talking about the wall. There's just generations and generations of hatred and mistrust between the wilds and the Night Watch. Tormund says this line, What we need is courage. The courage to make peace with men we've been killing for generations. Night's Watch needs that same courage. They're both having to really rise to the occasion, but, but a lot of them don't see it that way. They see it as the exact opposite. They see it as cowardly. They see it as betrayal. They see it as treason. That's a tough sell, both for Night's Watch and for the Wild. Laboda himself says, you know, what's going to happen? You're going to get, get on those ships? They're going to cut your throats. He doesn't trust them. He doesn't have, you know, it's not just about, I refuse to fight with them. He's like, I don't believe any of this. I don't buy it. I don't believe the wild, the Night's Watch has good intentions here. Just like a lot of the Night's Watch are saying the same thing. They're like, what, we're going to let them in here? And what if, what if they just start killing us? That's what Ollie said. It's the same, basically the same thing. He's like, well, you're going to let them in. What happens if you let them in and they just slit all our throats? It's the same exact line. You're going to let them on their ships? They're just going to slit your throats and toss you into the sea. It's the exact same mistrust presented in a couple of different ways. And what, so what did you think about this parlay in general? I, I liked it. I really liked it. I feel like a lot of the types of conversations that were happening here are what I wish John and Mance had talked about before he got burned to death. You know, <laughs> I, uh, I also appreciate the, I appreciate Tormund more as a character. I will say that. I think the, his actions here. Have John's, been, uh, John's trust in him is really yeah, justified, isn't it? Both, he's been both. I want to say bold and logical. You know, he's uh, he he understands what's at stake. He he's listening to what's going on, to what people are telling him. He's it'd be so easy for like, oh fuck you, Jon Snow, and like, oh, we're going to fight. But he's like, he understands there's something more at stake. He maybe learned something from Mance, uh, and uh, and he knows what a danger. He and Jon know what a danger it is to walk into hard home and all this opposition and all this distrust and everything else. So I want to give them credit for being wise and brave. Uh, and that's a good point to bring up too because as we just said earlier as we started this section the wildlings expect, uh, really do respect strength and there's got to be a few of them at least that have to respect John for, for showing up with just 10 or 20 men amidst all these wildlings that's yeah. no matter who no matter what they think of the Night's Watch or they think of John they have to admit that that's a brave thing to do uh, that doesn't mean they're going to go with him or support him in right, any way right. but grudging respect I think would even come from the ones who hated him the most if they could get past their their hatred to, yeah. to realize that, <laughs> which some of them may, may, maybe didn't do, <laughs> but a few of them certainly did. So when when the time came, when the, when the conversation was sort of settled, and Laboda made his you know rejection speech and basically walked out, a lot of people went with him. Yeah, and he's basically like, "Look, we're enemies. We're going to always be enemies." But when the time came, Laboda and John fought side by side. Yeah, he's like, "You and me, let's go. Let's get that dragon. Let's get glass. this dragon yeah. glass." So he realized it was kind of like a. When he's really in the thick of it, when his life is at stake, when he sees what's happening, when he's really confronted with the danger, 
I mean, let's be honest, it was epic as hell. And Laboda, just as, as you know, for, if we're from the audience, it was epic to us. If you're trying to put yourselves in the shoes of this character in, inside the, the action, inside the, inside the scene. He's got to be like, even though he's kind of seen these things probably because he's a northerner and living really far. Nah, he hasn't seen this. He maybe hasn't seen this, <laughs> yeah. exactly. He, hasn't, he certainly didn't see the, the zombie lemming scene, that, that thing. He hasn't seen anything like that. So he was got to be as overwhelmed. It had to maybe it sunk in at that moment. Of course, he dies a little bit later, so we don't get to see any more of him. Well, maybe we'll will. Maybe we'll see him as a zombie <laughs> yeah, as yeah, well. He, true, he'll yeah. be a white. You never know. All these guys could be pop up. Although he won't be carrying that badass axe of his. That thing shattered into a million pieces. Yeah. Now, so John says during the parlay there, he says, I'm not asking you to forget your dead. I'll never forget mine. And he was very emphatic about that. He was got, got a little emotional. Just to show them that he's like, look, I am like you. I care about my people too. You know, he's like, you won't fight for me or with me because of what my people did to yours? Well, I feel the same way, but I'm able to overcome that because of this, this common danger that we all face. Are you tough enough to do that? And that, but he also spins it a different way. He also points out, I'm asking you to think about your children. And then it cuts to this wildling chieftainess, Carsey is her name. And as we find out shortly after, she does have children. So this really means something to her. It's, mm-hmm. it, it, at the first thing, it's just they're showing a woman when someone talks about children. And that just, you know, that's just kind of an obvious situation there. It's like, oh, they show the woman character when he's talking about think of the children. That's a standard device to do there. But it's also sensible. And since this character does have several children, it it hits home a little harder a bit later, especially when it's presented so ominously. (laughs) She's saying farewell to her children, and you're like, "Uh, uh (laughs) uh-oh. And then later when she's on screen with the really tragic music playing as her children are around, you're like, you don't want to be the focus of the camera during the tragic music for that long. (laughs) That does not bode well. Yeah, as soon as that happened, it's like... Either something bad is happening to her, her children, or both. And yeah, it was both. <laughs> it was the worst possible. So, so it does seem like at least half of the elders, as they're called, which is funny because a lot of them didn't look very elderly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that Carsey is young, <laughs> but she was clearly um, you know, a strong personality. I can imagine in general, you know, wildlings might have a, a lower lifespan, a shorter lifespan. And I also did think a couple times how, how young John seemed in general, to be a Lord Commander, but among oh, these, yeah. he wasn't that much, you know, like, if he was among a bunch of westerly, Westerosi <laughs> lords, it would have been a bunch of 50-year-olds and his 20-year-old, but among the wildlings, there's a bunch of 30-year-olds and a 20-year-old. Yeah, you know, so. yeah, there were some older folks there, but they were, but yeah, you're right, the leaders were more the strong people and the, you know, the, you're right, that's a good point, their lifespan yeah, would the, be shorter. The warriors who hadn't died yet <laughs> versus the... The, the noblemen who own land, you know. Right. And, of course, in the wildling situation, there are no noblemen who own land. Right. <laughs> but there are the equivalents who are the, the chieftains and the, the great fighters, etc. So the actual invasion starts fairly soon after the parlay. This, this episode unusually had nearly half of its action, and it's mostly action, in one place, and continuously. There wasn't back and forth to hard home. It was a bunch of scenes and then hard home the rest of the way. And it really just captured our attention. A lot of people are calling it the best action scene the series has done so far. Would you agree? Or I, I think maybe I, uh, I, I'm pretty nitpicky about action stuff and I have a few complaints about this, but uh, they're, they're barely worth airing because I think it was overall good enough. I, I did like it. Uh, it was enough that I, first of all, 
I'm not sure, but it had to be one of the longer episodes. I think it was an hour and ten minutes long. Most episodes are right at or maybe even under an hour. That's right. And still, when it ended, I was like, that's it? <laughs> like, uh, I was still, like, surprised. Like, that's all? Has it been an hour already? You know, I was very caught up in it. And I, yeah, solid, uh, maybe 20, 30 minutes or so was the, that portion there, Hard Home. And uh, I don't know if I wanted more from that action or if I wanted to like, cut back to what's going on with Danny or someone else. I'm not sure, but I definitely feel like the episode cut short. And then I realized, wait, that was an extra long episode. So uh, I got to give him some credit. Yeah, it was neat. And the other thing about it that it was bears mentioning is that all the other major battles... We saw them coming. We knew it was like, oh, next episode, big battle coming. That's true. Blackwater. We knew Blackwater. We didn't necessarily know it would be the whole episode. We didn't know that there would be an entire hour of one battle. We didn't necessarily see that, but we knew it was going to be a battle. We knew the battle was coming, unless something like made the battle not happen. But we knew that was going to get resolved one way or another. Same thing with the battle Uh, at the wall, wall, which, you know, know, just a little bit to the south there. That was telegraphed, basically, and we knew it was coming because it was started the episode before. And we didn't, again, we didn't know it would be the whole episode. We didn't know it would cover, that it would be an action-packed episode all the way through. But we weren't surprised by the fact that the battle was the focus of it. This was a total surprise. A lot of people, like you said, were expecting the epic battle scene, if there was one, to be in episode 9. And this was like, not only did we not see this battle coming, but we didn't see the participants. We were like, whoa, the trailers really made me think. I was fooled even more in a, in a way because I thought there would be more conflict between the Wildlings and John. The way they did some of the trailers, it made it look like there'd be fighting amongst those people. They showed the fleeing and some of the fighting but and some of the people that John was fighting looked like Wildlings. They were, but yeah, they, they were they whites are, instead. Yeah, yeah. So that got me thinking it was a battle between the, the Watch and the Wildlings. And I was confused. I was like, well, how could it be a battle if John's only going north with 20 men? Maybe some of the Wildlings fought with him and some of them, I was just wrapping my head around it. And then they're like, oh my god, it's the White Walkers with this massive army and there's several White Walkers and there's like White Walker commanders. Yeah. And holy crap, it was so amazing. So I think that was a big part of it, the surprise of it all. Like we were like there was build up to these other battles. This one was just like huge epic battle that you no one was expecting. <laughs> yeah, things kept like getting bigger and bigger and uh, uh, in the same way, I guess people who read the books were expecting the Red Wedding. I wasn't ex- I was I guess I was expecting something. I thought it was gonna be something Joffrey's wedding. Yeah. I remember remembering back to that time period because Melisandre just made her predictions, and I was thinking of characters I was worried about dying, and oh, Martin will kill them off or whatever. And I thought that like something was gonna go down at King's Landing at Joffrey's wedding, and I was worried that you know Sansa might die or characters I really liked might die. But then as the episode started, albeit John. At, uh, Edmure's wedding. Yeah. Uh, started Edmure, to realize, yeah. oh, you know, there might and it's about that moment with. Caitlin, you know, seeing the armor on on uh, I said armors. Reveron, I meant the twins, but yeah, yeah, the seeing armor on Bruce Bolton, I was like, ooh, the ominous, the music, you know, like ooh, yeah. something's about to go. I didn't think it was gonna be as terrible and bloody as it was, you know, but um, point is, wait, what's the point? I just like talking about Game of Thrones. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, the oh, I remember at the red wedding, it kept escalating. Yeah. I remember it for oh, as terrible as it was when they like stabbed uh, Talisa. Talisa, I was like. Oh, they're gonna kill his unborn son. But then he had kept stabbing. Like, oh God, they're just gonna kill her. And then they just started killing everyone. They just kept getting bigger. And then Caitlin kills Walter Frey's wife. And I'm like, oh my God. I felt similar in this episode. I was like, oh man. You know, we see that that the music and the kind of like avalanche in the background. Like, ooh, here comes you know. Yeah, some it was zombies like are gonna it attack, was like the you know? audience reaction. Like John and the wildlings are having the same reaction we are. They're like, yeah. whoa, this is. Holy crap! It's coming. There's this ice wave. Yeah, I thought it, I thought like, it was like an avalanche. Maybe the avalanche is being caused by zombies. You know, 
uh, maybe it's a coldness, you know, something doom, some om ominous presence was approaching, you know, and there was concern, uh, to say the least, right? Yeah. And so, but then it turned to like, you know, suddenly a bunch of people outside were like killed somehow. So, you know, it's magically, my mystically, suddenly all these people outside are dead. Like, ooh, that's extra scary, right? Oh, God, <laughs> what's it going to be? He's like looking outside. We see the skeleton like, oh, man, zombies are attacking. They're fighting left and right. And all of a sudden, it's not just zombies, the white. Somehow they make those white walkers so intimidating they're so creepy <laughs> they're eyes so are good. Yeah, yeah the costumes are they're great. just stone they're just i just like <laughs> i can't decide if i want them to speak ever or not <laughs> part of me wants to know what they're thinking and how intelligent say, are they yeah 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 and i will say too he communicated he communicated to John. They had the look in his face, the movement with his hands, that body language. Come at me, bro. <laughs> yeah, that was... Uh, <laughs> I could go on. Yeah, it was exciting. I felt like it, it, it built. It, the excitement built. And the, and the action, again, I could nitpick a couple things, but it wasn't bad enough that I, like, turned off. A lot of times, action is like, ah, this is silly. You know, but this was... Uh, I appreciate John was, like, winded and, like, coughing up blood. And, you know, there was... Uh, People were dying left and right, and uh, I felt like they were mostly following physics, except for the White Walkers, which are magical. And so, you know, uh, it, it was it was it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was really just incredible. And there was, like you said, it did. It also just escalated, it kept escalating, it yeah. kept getting bigger. You're like, oh my god, they're coming! And then there's like hands reaching through the fence, and you know, all the they're coming at it from a lot of different angles. And you wonder if that's like foreshadowing. Is this like? Is that like? force of so many zombies like i can't it's of course a wooden wall is nothing like the wall but is that like is this a small scale of what it's going to look like at the actual wall because now they have this truly immense army you know as many wildlings and peoples they've killed along the way as they've added to their army of the dead so to speak this is probably double triple quadruple what they already had at least i mean i don't know it's i'm just guesstimating out of nowhere but I don't imagine that the White Walkers to this point have killed off an actually large percentage of the total wildling population. But this, this was a substantial chunk of all the wildlings. You know, I'm, I'm not saying they took like half of them or anything, but because they're so spread out and, you know, disunited. But man, that's just a huge thing. And now the ar their army is so big. Here's one thought, though. Sure. I still don't know. Uh, a couple thoughts, actually. What are they going to do to get across the wall? Like, it seemed like with 100,000 that the wildlings might be able to do it. When it was 100,000 to 100, they might be able to do it. And I'll even keep in mind of those 100,000, maybe less than half were actual able-bodied fighters. You know what I mean? Uh, so 50,000 versus 100. But they still had, like some design to what they were doing there was some amount of like plan with like ropes and chains onto the gate and like you know they had like catapults arrows they had weight climbing the zombies they seem pretty mindless they might be determined and tough and indestructible but they can't get up the wall i don't think it doesn't seem like they have enough coordination to build machines and pile on top know, of each other yeah. that would be a huge hill that'd of be zombies. a big pile i don't know if they, <laughs> and even if they did the people at the bottom can't get over still i guess maybe they hand each other i but they're still facing the sides swinging down boiling oil everything else i just don't see how they're gonna get across the wall although maybe some magical power that the white walkers have but it seems like if they have some magical power I don't even know if they need an army of zombies. I don't. You know, I'm not. Sure. I'm not. I don't know. I, I'm. I'm. I'm 
on top of all that, my thought is, what's their goal? What do they actually, what do they want? Is their goal to, like, sit on an iron throne? Is their goal to, like, <laughs> kill all humans? Is there, I'm not sure what their intent is. There's an old theory that they were, because you know that from history, maybe you don't know from history, the children of the forest were the original inhabitants of the area. And the first men came, and there was lots of fighting between the children and the first men. And eventually they made a deal to, the first men would stop cutting down the werewoods, and they'd stop fighting each other, and they'd live in peace. And the first men kind of gradually adopted the religion of the children of the forest. But then the Andals came, and it kind of started up again. They started, they were chopping down the trees again. And, of course... Before the Andals came, now the timeline of ancient history is hard to be sure about, but basically the story we're told is the others emerged pretty early on in male, male, in the history of man, and there's a popular theory that the others slash the White Walkers were created by the children of the forest as a way to fight against the onset of humankind. And then it kind of either got out of their hands or... Maybe, just like anything else, you can't expect the children to just be all of one mind about something. It could have been yeah. a faction of the children that just, that some of them were like, okay, well, we have to accept this change. Some of them were like, no, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna no continue to what, fight yeah. mankind. The radicals in their group, well, who knows which side would be considered the radicals. Yeah. But let's just say the radicals are the ones who are interested in killing humanity. So they created the others, slash the White Walkers, and this is... You know, but but it was it became out of their control. There it became. This is a theory. There's nothing. Yeah, yeah. You know, it does make sense because that is often, especially when you have more mystical villains in a show. I I I find it almost silly sometimes. You know, like some demon from another dimension is coming to Earth to kill Joe Schmo. Like, why does this demon from another dimension care about Joe Schmo or anyone <laughs> on Earth? What difference does it make to him? Creatures of such power from other dimensions. Like, what? What what could they want? What do they they want? Chocolate, you know? What I mean? Like, what are you what are you going after? What are they? There do? is no chocolate in are Westeros. They like, yeah. They're come to the wrong place. Are they? What 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 is motivating them? You know, and uh, more specifically, what's motivating them right now? Why now, not next year or last year? Well, they had Maybe to wait till all time there was no dragons, and they had to wait till everyone was fighting each other. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> it happened. No, I'm just saying. That. I don't know. I don't know about their timing. It could just be. Yeah. Like, you know, the comet and the way the magical sees this. There's something to be... Yeah. There's there's suggestions that, that magic is like a tidal thing. That it kind of recedes and yeah. wanes and comes back. And so that could be related. <laughs> but it might not be. The other thing that fits really well, though, is if if, if, the, if this aspect with the children of the for, uh, forest theory is that they live underground. So like this intense cold above ground that affects everything they could shelter from. Yeah. Whereas mankind could not necessarily... So that fits in it with it well, too. It fits in, like, well, it's something that would take out everybody but them. So whether yeah. or not they're responsible for it, it sure was convenient Yeah, in that, that sense. That, that, those are good theories, and they make my mind more at ease with it. I, I'm they open are to just other theories, theories though, yeah. and, you know, Maybe they will show us. I, I kind of hope that they will show us, but... Uh, it, there's, a, there's an inherent problem with, super, with theorizing about the supernatural. It can yeah. just... It, it isn't bound by rules. Yeah. You know, there's only certain lo- only so much logic we can apply to it. I do appreciate the the mysterious nature of these creatures, but at a certain level, I am more invested when I understand their goals. Does that make sense? Right. And maybe they're just blindly, madly killing all humans. But if that's the case, it's it takes something away because I felt like that guy who. I'm kind of guessing we'll talk about this a little bit because yeah. they, re- they actually refer to him as Night's the Night's King. King you yeah. know, he seemed to have, I'm gonna say, personality. 
Mm-hmm. You know, he seemed to, like, recognize John as a leader, maybe even as a threat, and it wanted to impose himself, wanted to send his own threat. He, he, he didn't seem to just be blindly killing everyone. He seemed to be observing and understanding and planning. And if that's there, the case, there seemed to be a what is his too. plan? Yeah, yeah, they also seemed to be... Like ranks, like he was, right. like a, he was like the king, yeah. and they had like yeah. some other guys on horses. There was like four of them. It was like the... Yeah. The, the, someone I made the joke, that. the four horsemen of the ice apocalypse. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, and uh, that, uh, that's even further added to, because in the, you know, the behind the scenes bit, I don't remember, inside the episode or whatever they call it, uh, he even referred to them as his lieutenants, the, mm-hmm. the Knights King and his lieutenants. And so, and we remember from the earlier scene, there seemed to be a sort of a ceremony. They were standing around, With baby, the structure, yeah. and da da da. So, it makes me believe there must be some motivation. They have, some they design. have some sort of civilization, right? Yeah. They're not just like mindlessly killing all humans. Well, there's also and like so, a like a sort of an ice castle thing in the background. Yeah, in that area. yeah, yeah. Well, up or, in the, from from season four. Maybe their goal is to kill all humans, but I'm just kind of interested in knowing: is that their goal? Is there some other goal? Is there any potential for peace talks or compromise? Or what, is it enough for them to... Maybe they just, for example, maybe they just want to get rid of all humans north of the wall. And maybe John takes all the wildlings on the other side of the wall, the White Walkers, and he's like, there, and stay out. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> or are they motivated to get past the wall? And if they are motivated to get past the wall, how in the world are they going to do it? You There's know? a big question going around. This is a question I've had for a long time about how that all works. And why would you build a huge wall of ice to keep out beings who seem to be full of ice magic? Yeah. Does that make sense? It seems almost backwards. There's there's a, a, a more crackpot theory out there that suggests that the White Walkers built the wall initially. Maybe. And that humans took it over. Uh, I don't There's not a lot to back that theory up, but it is weird. Or maybe they were working together in some way. Like, I don't know how much we want to talk about this, but isn't that, isn't the Night's King... He used to be a used yeah. to be a Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. Supposedly, like, that's a legend. Yeah, thousands of years ago, some some way he, way back. Su- time, he was or... supposedly the thirteenth Lord Commander of the Night's yeah. Watch, and 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 John is the nine hundred ninety eighth or nine hundred ninety. Okay, so yeah, a long time ago. ago yeah. <laughs> yes, um, the. Uh, by the way, I can imagine one reason you make it out of ice, uh, is, especially as time passes and the the magical White Walkers aren't so much the threat because it's been built up over time, right? Right. It's a material that you have that's more. That line has even been used in the in the book in the show. They're like, you don't build out a oh, seven thousand or a seven hundred foot wall of ice to keep the people out, keep out savages and skins. That something, yeah. something along those lines is said, and people are like, well, yeah, good point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, uh, who knows what the the reasonings of ancestors past were for how and why they did it all it's clear um, that these white walkers have powers like you said they have magic they you know like they froze a bunch of people they can raise the dead they had the zombie lemmings thing happen that was so epic. they can turn <laughs> themselves into shards of ice with the stroke of a sword <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a good segue to something we should talk about what did you think of that john's sword i immediately want to know how many other swords are there? Who? What other houses? How are there? I, I, I did a little research, I, or actually I had to do some research. I, I wanted to know, like, are there like seven swords or seven hundred swords? You know, and uh, I think we got a number around two hundred weapons of different types yeah. that are scattered around, may or may not be accounted for. And I, and I, because I was like, you need to get them all together. Everyone who has a, <laughs> uh, a Valerian steel sword needs to come to the wall. 
And I can imagine that might be as tough as Mance Ritter getting all the wildlings to unite, is getting everyone has a. They have to be threatened directly to real. It'd be like Lobota there. He's like, no, I'm not doing that until like then the White Walker's right in his face. He's like, all right, we're together. Might be too late. But even if they want to, let's just say that some Dornish soldier has a Valerian steel spear. Yeah, why would why would someone in Dorne be worried about what's going on way up there? Even if he's worried, it'll take him months to get there. Right? (laughs) It's like huge long journey to get up there. He's like, all right, I'll be right there. Even on (laughs) ship, it's going to be weeks. I don't know how long they had till they get to the wall. And I still don't see how they're going to get past the wall, but maybe some kind of magic. Yeah, so the, that's a good question. Some of the swords that we have seen, that we've seen in the show for sure, is obviously Ned's sword, Ice, which was well, that's two split into two now. swords now. One of them is Widow's Whale, and one is Oathkeeper. We don't really know. Widow's Whale is somewhere that in King's Landing, question I, I had. Yeah, what happened to... Because it was given to Joffrey on his sword, wedding. Yeah. So once he dies, I... I just sort of assume it goes to Tom. And, it would stay in the But I also assume yeah. Tom's not like just carrying it around on his hip all the time. It's I assume it's yeah. safe. Somewhere in King's But Landing. maybe, given to... I, I even wonder if maybe Marin Trant's carrying it around. But I, th- <laughs> I, I decided against that because it's like... It was kind of a small sword, right? And yeah, I, yeah, I think it would look a little silly for Marin Trant. Yeah. But I also can imagine some big, strong warrior with this little sword. Like, you might think it's silly. But I'm going to kill you with a Valerian steel blade. <laughs> I don't care how little it is. <laughs> and, of, the, of course, Brienne has one. And she's yeah. right yeah, there. She's well, not right there, there. But she's yeah. closer than pretty probably any other Valerian steel yeah. blade besides John's. Sam's dad has one? Sam's dad does have one. That's right. They brought that up. And uh, I don't remember when that was brought up. I guess it was brought up when... Sam was talking about his father was Stannis, but it doesn't really matter when it was brought up. It was definitely brought up. And there are a few others out there. It's, it's, it, there were the one that you mentioned that you knew about that was lost by T- Tyrion's ancestor. Yeah, there was that Tyrion's uncle was trying to go find. And, uh, yeah. In the same place where Tyrion and Jorah went through. And... Right, Bright Roar. Which, by the way, I wondered, thinking back on that scene, I forgot to bring this up. Why didn't Tyrion mention that he saw Drogon? <laughs> or he didn't know it was Drogon. But he didn't mention that he saw the dragon at yeah, all. Yeah, I guess that. I guess they're saving that. Just like Tyrion didn't mention that he knew G.R. Mormont to Jorah. He's say, they're saving that. Yeah, Maybe that'll be yeah. next episode. Anyway, that's we're not talking about that right now. <laughs> but, so, yeah, so that's really, really fascinating, this whole situation where we, we learn that Valyrian Steel is has this special power, and the White Walker was surprised by it, too. They, their blades clash, and he's just like, whoa, <laughs> And then they, they kind of, their eyes meet. And meanwhile, the Night's King is watching this He's happen. Watching he sees that. Too, He's like, yeah. uh-huh, he has a weapon that matters. That might be why he took note of John rather than him being a, a leader. Might have been just because yeah. he's that. But he also is wearing the Night's Watch garb, which has to stand out. Yeah, and went to go to the place where the other White Walker was, like charged in. Yeah, like, yeah. he killed another White Walker. He's the only one who killed a White Walker there. Yeah. So that that singles him for a lot of reasons. The blade, he might have even sensed the blade, like maybe yeah. it was like a yeah, like the force or <laughs> yeah, the force, the ice. <laughs> and so, I guess John is now the second person to have slain a White Walker on the show. I also thought it was interesting that they had the giant kind of looking at the dragon glass up close. Yeah, like he was very intrigued the by it. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. that giant has a name, by the way. His name is One One. Okay. Yeah, not the number, but just W-U-N. Not the loser loser. The one <laughs> one. <laughs> so I, I liked his his action in the fighting, too. A lot of times, some of the giant fighting scenes have been a little silly, but this this was cool. Like, he's yeah. he's just fighting with his hands and his fists he's stomping on things. He's got to be worth 50 men. I mean, he's, Oh, yeah. yeah. His flaming log was a nice touch. That was cool. <laughs> And so I'm glad to see him survive and walk out to the ships, I suppose. <laughs> he had to start swimming. I don't even point. know if he can get on a ship. <laughs> <laughs> I think he probably can, but yeah, maybe not. Big ship, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so they just got to be careful. Like, all right, just everybody stand on this side of the ship while he's climbing on to keep the weight on this side. But 
Yeah, it was really sad. There were a lot of moments during the battle too, like Carsey, that wildling chieftain who dies. Yeah, she just I couldn't... was hoping she'd be a new character. But yeah, she yeah. just yeah. A lot of people were a lot of people were sorry to see her go. Some people were like instantly like she's my new crush, but now she's gone. <laughs> and yeah, she just couldn't just bring herself. Like all to, the others, she couldn't bring herself to kill the children, the, her own no, like, her yeah. own children and the other children, even though they were undead. She, she was too much for her, and very sad. Okay, so a couple of uh, one or two questions here. We don't have a lot of time. As we predicted, we didn't have, we we don't have a lot of time left, and we had so much to talk about. So let's focus on the question that I cut you off on earlier. Uh, the watcher's name is Travis Raker, and he wants to know: Might Danny and the High Sparrow work together, given that he wants to hold people accountable, accountable, and she's not guilty of these particular sins that all these other nobility are guilty of? Probably, not that he knows of, anyway. <laughs> And they're both very pro commoner. You know, she's like all about freeing people from yeah. bondage and supporting the, you know, that. So it's an interesting question. So this is now you can go ahead and revisit your thoughts on this whole idea. More specific to that question, I will point out Danny seems pretty much to plan on committing adultery. So that's one thought, you know. Uh, <clears throat> that's true. I, it, it remains to be seen what kind of a sin adultery is in their eyes. I'm sure they're not happy with it. They're definitely all about yeah. monogamy. So, And I, I don't see Danny wanting to persecute homosexuals, but I don't, hasn't, we haven't really seen any of that one or the other, but I just assume that's not part of her character. I doubt she'd care. <laughs> uh, I, I will say a thought I've had is I don't think the High Sparrow is going to cooperate with Stannis and the Red, and the, the Red Witch, right? Because... Uh, because that was another thought I did have is like I, f I feel like they shouldn't fight. I feel like Stannis and Roose have more to gain by allying than fighting. But even still, like with all the houses, like the Lannisters are pretty much just out of it. I feel like, and I can imagine Dorne. Just uh, I don't know what what religion do they have in Dorne. They worship the seven. seven? Yeah, okay, they yeah. worship the seven. So I can I can imagine Dorne just being like, yeah, it's the highest bro. Yeah, you're better than Lannisters. Whoever, we don't care. We're doing our own thing down here, and. uh the Starks aren't. I, I'm just trying to imagine all how everyone's going to fall in line at the point if if the if the church announces, all right, Tom is a bastard. He's not the real king. We got to figure out who the king is. For now, the High Sparrow is going to be. Stannis is like, wait, I, me? It's me. I'm I'm the king uh, over here. And Roose is like, yeah, I've been the knee to him. And the Tyrells is like, yeah, he's better than freaking Lannisters. And everyone's like, okay, yeah, Stannis, we'll accept you as a king. We'll bend the knee. And High Sparrow is going to be like, uh, not with that red witch. You're not. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. think they're just going to welcome Stannis <clears throat> in the King's Landing. That's a big uh, no-no, having a following another religion. Yeah, that's... So, I wonder, A, who the High Sparrow, if he has any plan of naming a new king, who it will be, who, what person is going to rise to that, and how Stannis will take that, or how they would accept Stannis. That seems more short-term of a thing to be predicting than Danny, you know. But maybe Danny will jump into dragons, fly over tomorrow, tear him like, all right, if we want to take Westeros, <laughs> let's go now, while they're being attacked by zombies. You know, we need to save them, you know, but... I still think that's a season away, at least. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I think they have stuff in common, but I don't know. I have a feeling by the time Danny gets there, High Sparrow's not going to be there anymore. Some, something to look about. That's a good, that's a, that's a very distinct possibility and worthy consideration. But if you look at the way things are coming apart from a, at a high level, the wall is not necessarily in turmoil, but it's potentially set up to be in turmoil because of, obviously, the invasion, but also from within because of these these disputes about joining with the wildlings. Yeah. Same thing from the wildlings' perspective, although I'm sure a lot of them are more sold on the idea now that they've seen the White Walker assault. The, the, King, the Iron Throne is in flux right now. The North is in flux right now with, with two major combatants going at it. Dorne is not in flux, but... 
there's certainly a situation going on there. The Tyrells are married in with the Lannister situation, the Baratheon situation, and the Riverlands was, was pretty much destroyed during the war. The Vale is still in pretty good shape. The Vale isn't, hasn't been touched by the war at all. But other than the Vale and part, maybe some of the Stormlands and, and partially Dorne, it's pretty bad as far as, you know, unity and things being settled to the point where humanity can kind of come together. So you do wonder about the intelligence of the White Walkers and whether they had some sort of inkling of how the realm, how turbulent the realm is, because yeah. their timing is quite good. It's quite good. And that does, you're right, that does, that, you can't just say, oh, it's just the, the timing. There, it, I wouldn't throw that away lightly. I would consider, yeah, there might be more to it. I'm not sure. So it's a very interesting situation. Um, did you have any more on that question? Did you have any more thoughts on Danny and the High Sparrow? Or is that just kind of a more wait and see? Like you said, yeah, he might not even be there. Something occurred to me, a parallel there, yeah. Yeah. It could definitely be something someone else could be in place by them. But it's hard to say who. Like, maybe Tommen gets back a hold of things, but who else is there? Like you said, Stannis, maybe. But things aren't looking great for Stannis right now yeah. either, are they? So, it's really hard to say. Like, Danny's really the only viable candidate, but she's so far away and yeah. she's got her own things I'm going thinking, on. like, you know, let's say they have the, the... They're not planning on having a trial for Cersei three years from now. Right? right? It's probably going to be three weeks or maybe three days, maybe three whole months, I don't know. After that trial, let's say everything goes the way the High Sparrow wants or thinks or expects or whatever. Cersei's guilty, doesn't confess, chop off her head. Tommen is, not, is a bastard, he's not the real king. And so now, what? Who's the king? What, mm -hmm. What's the High Sparrow just going to be like, okay, there, we punished all the bad people, uh, go back to work now, nothing to see here, move along, move along. Like, there's, I still think things will fall apart, even his position as head of the Faith Militant or whatever might not last if just stability. On some level, King's Landing is depending on food coming from the Tyrells. Yeah. You know, Lennon's like, screw this, I'm not sending any more food, there'll be riots in the street and they can riot against all the nobles kill them and not have any food and then what's the high sparrow gonna do you know so uh that would be a conundrum maybe the seven kingdoms <laughs> just won't be the seven won't be united kingdom anymore maybe maybe there will be no iron throne but that's still you're not alone with that prediction there's a lot of people that think the series will end that way that that by the end of course this is something that's yeah. so far ahead that no one can really be sure but yeah, you're not you you're not the first one to make that suggestion. It's a good idea. I think it's very possible that there there may not be a united Iron Throne by the end. There may be some sort of completely new division of kingdoms, or it could be more united than it was in the first place. You never yeah, That's it's hard to say. Thing. But that is I like that theory. I think it's very um, very reasonable. Okay, uh, we'll still have a little bit of time for the trailer discussion. Let's do some credits here. Give some thanks where thanks are due. Very important thing for us to do almost as, as almost as often as possible occasionally we have to skip the credits for time reasons patreon thanks thanks to hand of the king and first lord cash craig aka vaxis on the history of westeros forums our warden of the north is lord parker the bastard of starkville and breaker of the first stone master of coin and first counselor is lord robert jacobs our master of whispers is lord james the scholar Grand Maester Itai wears the jeweled collar of many medals. Rosie the Clever is our Master of Laws. And Lord James Tuttle is our Master of Ships. Our Night's Watch is commanded by George the Golden. And our Kingsguard is commanded by Lord Commander Shepard. Sir Troy the Steady swings the Valyrian steel blade Fate as the history of Westeros King's Justice. 
Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki is the Alpha Patron, Lord Nathan of the Fire Fort, and Dan of the Red Mountains, Lord of Great Bell and Breaker of the Second Stone, round out our list of lordly lords. Remember that you can also do a regular straight PayPal donation through historyofwesteros.com, and that will get you early access to upcoming episodes. Nothing to do with the TV show, of course, because we release those as soon as we can. But regular History of Westeros episodes, you can get those a little bit earlier by doing a regular donation. Also, that applies to Patreon people. There are many other benefits to be had on Patreon, so check it out, www.patreon.com slash historyofwesteros. And a reminder, folks, don't forget that we're doing next week's episode live at 4.30 on Monday, 4.30 Eastern Daylight Time. So look out for the links for that and be prepared to tune in and watch us live. It's going to be a lot of fun. So if you don't want to hear anything about the trailer discussion, adios to you, and we will see you either next week or in the Book to Show episode, depending on your own level of spoiler tolerance. So let's talk about the trailers real quick. One of the first things we see is we see John and Tormund and One One and others approaching the wall, and Alistair's looking down on them like he might not want to let them in. That would be a real kick in the pants, wouldn't it, if John fights his way out of that situation only to be abandoned right in front of the wall? <laughs> Any thoughts on that? Also, the other thing that's happening in that scene that's very apparent is there's a lot of snow. It is coming down heavy. I, I think he'll let him in. I can imagine there might be some sort of, like, resistance or negotiating or something, but I, I have a hard time believing Alistair would just not let them in. Yeah. It's it's worthy, worthy of consideration, but I tend to agree that he'll probably let them in, but... It might just be a trick of the trailer, but yeah, that wouldn't that would be interesting if John had to basically he'd have to stay on that side of the wall. <laughs> he'd have to find shelter, and uh, he wouldn't be able to stay where they were. They wouldn't be able to stay put. They'd have to go somewhere. They'd have to head east or head west. Maybe try to go around the wall. I don't know what they'd do if, if that were the case. I doubt they'd attack the wall. <laughs> John's like, all right, now we're attacking the wall. They're not letting us in. Let's just. If Mans couldn't do it, I don't know that this this group, this, this ragtag group, probably couldn't handle it. Now. Dorn Martell appears in the trailer as well. And what he's saying is, you can swear your allegiance to me or you can die. Who's he talking to? He's talking to. Probably not Jamie. That seems unreasonable for him to expect Jamie Lannister to swear his allegiance to him. But it could be Braun. It could be the Sand Snakes. Probably, probably not. Probably nobody else. I bet it's Ilaria. Ilaria, the Sand Snake. Yeah, that seems like a good guess. Now, Sir Pohi, Another watcher suggests that Bronn's thoughts on Dorn in general. How John Bronn seemed to like Dorn. He talked about how he liked. He's like, yeah, that's yeah, that's maybe, an argument maybe, for him yeah. being the one to take it. Yeah, and like maybe true. his off, maybe because you know we know what what Jamie's offer was. He's like, I'll give you a bigger castle and a better woman. Dorn could probably top that. Yeah, he yeah. could probably offer him an even bigger castle. And you know, I don't know. I don't suppose he's going to offer Tyene, but if he did, <laughs> <laughs> that might work. He might be like. Her? Yeah, all right. You got Deal. <laughs> We've already seen that he's quite entranced by her, so that could work. Although he might be a little worried about repeated poisonings, <laughs> but I don't think Bronn's any worried about that. He's uh, he's not a, he, he's not afraid of such things. So I think that's really really potentially quite interesting. Now we also see Arya and Jaken progressing towards this potential murder of the insurance man. They're talking about it a little more, and there seems to be a few scenes along those lines. I'm not sure there's much to predict there. You know, like it could go wrong. It could go right, but either way, we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, but it's, and it probably won't stop the general storyline for Arya either. Right, so. and but but it is nice to know that we're going to have more of Arya next episode because a lot of times she takes an episode off. She hasn't been in that many episodes total yeah. season. They, they, they've done it. They've focused on her a lot when she's in the episode, but most of the episodes she isn't in. So I expect that we'll get some good Arya action next episode. We also have 
some scenes in the north. We have potential clues as to what happens with Ramsey's little commando raid, assuming that's what it is. Melisandre, we see Melisandre looking very concerned. We see tents in the snow burning, which certainly lends itself to the whole sabotage notion. We have Davos and Stannis together, and we have Stannis' quote saying, If a man knows what his destiny is, he must fulfill it. Maybe Ramsey will burn Shireen. Maybe oh, Melisandre won't get a chance. I don't Poor know if that count for the sake of power. Constantly in danger, Shireen. Yeah. Jeez. Then we have Melis. Then we have also the big pit scene. Daznak's huge pit. That looks like it's gonna be pretty epic. Danny like stands up there waiting for you, and then Danny stands up and like commences it, yeah. and then everybody rises, and you get the Targaryen banners everywhere. That looks like it's gonna be pretty epic. Something to look forward to there. So it looks like there'll be plenty more epicness for the rest of the season here. There's, there's only two episodes left. Should be a lot of action. Should be a lot of plot lines maybe coming to a close or resetting. Anything you're most excited for? Or is it hard to say? Yeah, it's too hard to just Too hard to yeah. say, yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Okay, folks, that is our show. We will see you all next week. Thank you, everyone who sent us questions and support of all kinds. And we look forward to continuing covering the rest of the season with you, even though it's pretty short. Valar Morgulis, until next time. Now, if you're a TV show watcher and you don't... You haven't been able to decide how to find the time to read the books. Well, I have a suggestion. Try listening to them on audiobook. It's a much more time-efficient way to digest what is admittedly an intimidating amount of material. <laughs> George R. R. Martin's books are long. And even if you are intimidated by reading such a large book, and I don't mean intimidated like you're scared of it. I just mean you're, you don't want to commit that much time to it. You're like, oh, do I have this time? My life is too busy. I have kids. I have a job. I have all these commitments. It's hard to sit down and find time to read such a huge book. So that's why I recommend audiobooks. Go ahead and head over to historyofwesteros.com and click on the audible.com link. And you can sign up for a free 30-day trial on audible.com, which allows you at least one free download. Another feature of Audible.com is if you do become a regular member, they allow you to return books that you're not satisfied with. That is a very unusual thing, but it's true. And so you can at least see if that is a way to, that will work for you for digesting A Song of Ice and Fire, which is what the books are called. It's not called Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones is book one of A Song of Ice and Fire. So if, if you think that might work for you, go to historyofwesteros.com, check it out. It might not work for you, but you might discover a whole new way to digest something that's really fun, something that's amazing, just while you're doing chores, while you're doing exercise, while you're walking the dog, a little bit at a time, 15, 20 minutes a day, you'll be surprised how quickly it all gets, you get through it, especially if you have a long commute, something like that. Once again, audibletrial.com slash history of Westeros. Check it out. We'll see you next time, folks.